Hi, David. Good to have you on the show. Hey, Hardy. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. <laughs> so uh, for everybody who doesn't know you, David, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yep. Uh, so I'm a circus performer and uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm a former Navy SEAL, CIA contractor, and now I run a, a motivational training and performance business called Frog Logic Concepts, uh, where I work with uh, just, you know, given motivational speeches to, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, probably do about 50, 40 to 50 events a year. Um, and then I also am a performance coach. So um, I, the most notable stuff uh, that I've done recently in 2018, I was a, a motivational performance coach for the Oregon State Beavers who won the Collegiate World Series Championship. And then I was the motivational performance coach for the Boston Red Sox who won the World Series Championship. So uh, you know, I also, you know, host uh, my own show. I was an award-winning podcast host for a, a lot of years with the Team Never Quit podcast with Marcus Luttrell. And uh, for some family reasons, left the show and started my own show, the Frog Logic podcast, back up. And after about a month, we're, we're uh, back in the top 100 of society and culture on iTunes. So, yeah, that's what I do. I, I try and provide motivational content for people that matters awesome could you please share with our listeners the story behind like how you became a navy seal and yeah why you became a navy seal in the first place so uh it's kind of an interesting thing i i had my dream was to play american football in college and my whole life and childhood growing up and that didn't end up working out i ended up getting recruited to penn state university to play lacrosse uh, where I figured I'd then walk on the team. Um, unfortunately for me, the freshman quarterback at Penn State was the the number one recruited quarterback in the country. He went on to be the best quarterback in Penn State's history. The guy was a monster. He was like 6'5", 255 pounds. I mean, he was like the best of the best. And Huge guy, yeah. Yeah, just he was he was the epitome of a, a great quarterback. And so at, at six foot and... 155 pounds soaking wet, my, my dreams came to an end. Um, and that initiated a struggle of sorts uh, for the next four years. Now, uh, I was an art major with a minor. How old were you back then? Uh, I, I entered college at 18, and then I, I, I left college at 22 to join the Navy. And, and you know, while I was in, I was fortunate to, like I was saying, I was a I was an art major with a minor in poetry and sociology and and really became fascinated with the human condition and mm. trying to recognize, you know, why we all suffer. Uh, and uh, I, I hit a point. Uh, I grew up in, a, in an affluent town in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, didn't have a lot of struggles growing up uh, other than you know, sports. That was it. And and recognize that in order for me to kind of uh, subdue these fears that had built up in me as a young man, uh, I, I needed to test my, my metal, so to speak, and, 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 and regain the self-confidence which I had lost by not realizing my dream as a football player. And, and really, I didn't perform that well at all academically in school either. And so I, I through 
this a random sequence of events, uh, a next door neighbor when I was a freshman had given me a book about Navy SEALs from Vietnam. And I read the thing, you know, I didn't put it down. And I was like, wow, these these guys, they're they're pretty special. And fast forward where I had hit this really existential moment of of what I was going to do in my life, because I'd been battling depression pretty significantly for four years. I How become- are you dealing with that? Yeah. Not well. I was uh, anesthetizing myself with a lot of alcohol, some drug oh. use, and really hit like a hot drugs or just weed and no, alcohol? just yeah, just weed and alcohol basically. And and I just hit a point where uh, it was I, I knew I couldn't continue that at all, and so I needed to reshape my fear, so to speak. And and I knew the only places in my life where I had thrived was when I was a part of a team. I just, I always feel at home when I'm on some kind of team. And I figured after reading that book a few years earlier, well, there's no better team in the world where you're forced to really test your resolve on a day in and day out basis than going through SEAL training and becoming a Navy SEAL. So I made the decision in April, 1995 to drop out of school and join the Navy to become a Navy SEAL. Mm. And how uh, how how did your family react to this situation or to this decision? It's a great question, right there. You know, you you know they they'd been very um, patient with me in school because of my grades and just uh, I you know I'd gotten kicked off the lacrosse team and and they rec- they would hope that I w- was just going through a phase and that I would you know snap out of it and next thing you know I'd I'd, I'd go to law school and become a lawyer like, yeah. my dad, like, like my dad and 17 other relatives in my family were, were a family of lawyers. Mm. And uh, when I, I remember the second call I made was to my father to explain to him that, hey, I was going to drop out of school to pursue this dream. And he handled it brilliantly. He didn't get mad. He didn't scream. He's, mm. he's like, all right, well, you know, why don't you come home and we'll talk about it. And one of the, one of the great aspects of it was, you know, he, he was the guy worked, you know, 90, 100 hours every week running his own firm. He, he's just he was an animal. And so when I came home from this, he would come home early and we would spend two, three hours a day really hashing out from a philosophical perspective, from, uh, you know, a behavioral perspective uh, and most importantly, from an emotional perspective, what I was hoping to ascertain from putting myself in this, you know, with and, and he covered the entire spectrum of what we should talk to up to and including uh, we went and met with uh, my best friend from high school, his father, who was a, a real successful a real estate CEO who had served two tours in Vietnam as a, as a platoon commander. And and after you know, almost dying from malaria. Uh, he got out and was accepted into Harvard Business School, went to Harvard Business School, killed it there and has just, you know, was very successful guy. But, you know, he, he had some he had some hard stories. So we went and met with him for an, an evening one night where he just sat me down and he's like, so you want to go to war, huh? And, <laughs> and, and and Hardy, that was the one, man, that was the one where I was just like, oh, my God, he's sitting there. He's describing these stories, one in particular where he was the type of leader that, you know, when they would have to do these tunnel searches, right, because mm. 
built tunnels everywhere. They, they had this wonderful tactical tunnel system all through Vietnam, South Vietnam, all through the, the, um, um, the paths in Laos and all around. I mean, they were brilliant, brilliant engineers. And he would, instead of sending his guys in there, he would go in. And at and one time he went in, saw a guy, shot the guy. The guy had a hand grenade, dropped the hand grenade, blew, blew up in the tunnel. The tunnel collapsed as he was racing to get out of the tunnel. You know, he was about six feet from the tunnel when it went off. It collapsed on him. And so he thought he was going to be buried to death in there. And as it was his platoon mates that... They, they were able to dug him out before he suffocated. And, Crazy story. Yeah, and so you hear this, and, and that's just, you know, a brush with death. He also, you know, told me several stories where, you know, he, he had platoon members of his die in his arms. And so he tried to frame it as, hey, it's not this, it's not this movie thing that you watch. Yeah. It, it was, there's nothing glorious about it even in victory you know it's immense tragedy right mm. and so you you can't approach it and if you're going in he said to me listen if you're going to seek glory or or to just be a tough guy then i wouldn't even do it there's a bunch of other ways you can do that and other things in life but if you're going to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself and going to be a part of something that's you know the deepest idealism that you've ever imagined, which is, you know, the protection of freedom, the protection of democracy, the protection of, 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 of free societies, you know, then yeah, I think do that. And man, it, it really put me in a, uh, in, in some quandary because, you know, when you hear those stories, those tragedies of, of just boys dying on the battlefield and mm. everything they've ever had, for a cause in particular in Vietnam where many, you know, a lot of people, you know, including the guys down range didn't believe in the cause. Um, you know, it, it really put me back, but I, I didn't stop. I, I thought about it. I went in and, and went into boot camp uh, in the summer of 1995. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. I was just thinking about, um, because I'm half German and half uh, from Kenya and yeah. my, my grandmother and my grandfather are German and um they they went through through the second world war in Königsberg, and i i've just wow. was, i was just thinking about the stories i've heard heard as a kid and yeah like no food and everybody is like um under pressure and feels stressed out and yeah so it must be crazy to be in the war so uh yeah totally. well one, one of the interesting things i think about germany too and, and you know there's such a for obvious reasons, because of the Nazi party, there's this, yeah. this this blanketing negative connotation of of Germany. But people need to understand there were, you know, millions and millions of civilians that that were entrapped in this this mm. this, this war, and and you know the Allied bombing campaigns into Germany were yeah. the most treacherous almost in human history, right? I mean, yeah. you know, there's the there, the story of Dresden. And the bombing in Dresden and the fires, you know, the fires would get into these almost like tornadoes burning over 3000 degrees and just incinerating blocks at a time. You know, those that's German civilians that are that are embattled in that as well, too. And, you know, the overall cost of Germany for that war, I mean, most people don't recognize that over 19 million people, Germans 
died in that war. You know, soldiers, <sighs> civilians, and and it's people. Is so huge, yeah. It, it, it is, and and I, you know, I I I think what scares me, and and now having been a part of, you know, been in that world for as long as I was, and paying close attention to it, and not only at the the SEAL teams, but in the CIA, but you begin to realize the profound effects on warfare uh, on, a, on a culture, on a society, on a civilization. Mm. And if you look at the 20th century, you know, uh, we, you know, uh, the rough estimates that it could have been 300, 400 million people died in the 20th century from warfare. It's, it's so crazy. The number right? is so, it, so, it's yeah, staggering. Yeah, it's staggering. And, and yet we still live in a place where, you know, conflict, luckily we're in the most peaceful time mm. in human history, which people don't know that either. Um, but we're, we're in a very transitional phase. And I think there, we're, we're, we're treading on in some dangerous waters right now with, with uh, how uh, countries are becoming more and more nuclear capable. Long range missile systems are being developed. They're being emplaced all over Europe through Asia. I mean, mm. so it's, you know, it, it's not a game and, and, and the effects are generational. So, you know, I, but at, you know, 22 years old, man, I, I didn't even, I didn't even really know how to process and, all that. And I think that the effects even last for like so, so many years, because like, for instance, uh, my, my grandmother died like a couple of, of years ago, but um, she was, I can still remember, she was always, always talking about the war, always, like really? still, after all, say? after all those years, yeah, they were hungry all the time, they had no food, they were like um, suffering from anxiety all the time, and yeah, basically could describe the situation as uh, how bad it was back then, and she was always talking about the war like 50 years after it, so... <laughs> Well, yeah. you, you, it's funny. You you look at, you know, our generation and, and you know, we're only two, three generations away from it. Yeah. But yet everybody is losing touch with the severity of that. I mean, World War Two alone was, you know, up anywhere from 70 to 75 million human beings. Right. Were uh, annihilated for this. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's an extreme thing. And I think, you know, because of what we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East lately with such low, at least low for the allied troops that are participating, I mean, it's huge numbers for how, how many died in Vietnam, uh, 58,000 from, 58. from America, but the, the estimates for the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong could be three, four, maybe 5 million. <laughs> So, I mean, those are giant people. numbers still. And, and when you look at Iraq, Afghanistan, I mean, it's tough to say um, it could be, you know, a million, million and a half people have died as a result of this. And so the effects of, of war are substantial. But as a, as a young kid, you know, just trying to regain my sense of self-confidence and become a part of a team you don't contemplate uh, w what you're really getting into. And, and you, you just, it just, it's just this, you know, you, like any young person does, you know, you put things in, up in, into almost a, a perspective of, of, you know, rose colored glasses all the time. And, you know, you're like, yeah. Oh, yeah, without really understanding what, what you're getting into. Mm, 
Yeah, and um, before we talk about your time in the Navy SEAL, so uh, I also think it's worth mentioning here that um, having a support structure, or like receiving support from your family is so, so important. And it's so great, I think, that your family supported you, you like throughout the time, because I think that a lot of people in my age, like early 20s, mid 20s, they're like always having those those parents that aren't really supportive of their decisions and i think it's make it makes for me personally it makes a huge difference having parents that are like really supportive so uh, yeah well i mean it, there's not a i don't think there's a case study in the world from any you know psychological case study that that would suggest that supportive parents is a bad thing right i mean <laughs> <laughs> that's like the number one thing for for uh, you know you know prepubescence adolescence that thing and then in even in nowadays and in, in that transitional you know moment where you're becoming an adult you're becoming you're making adult decisions that are going to have long lasting effects on your character, your behavior, your, your cognition, um, you know, to have somebody that got behind me right in the beginning yeah. was amazing. And, you know, my mom was apprehensive. She didn't know much about the military at all. Nobody had served in our family for almost, uh, two generations. So, so we, you know, we weren't rooted in military service mm. in, in the modern era in my, you know, as I was a young man, but, you know, they both understood why I needed to do it. And uh, so they agreed to uh, support me, which was profound, uh, just knowing that they believed that I could do it, you know, with a, I mean, the one thing about BUDS or basic underwater demolition seal training, you know, there's an 86% dropout rate. And so most so people, high. yeah, so it's, high. it's one of the highest in, in all the military around the country, you know, the I know the German comp swimmers have a, a huge dropout rate in their training mm. program. Um, I, I know the GSC also. Yeah, 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 huge dropout rates, and and you know, so when you when you enter into those programs, the the like the most likelihood is that you're going to get injured or, or you know or something goes wrong with it or fail an evolution that needs to be passed. And next thing you know, I would have wound up in, you know, in, on a regular Navy ship chipping paint and, you know, in the engine room and, and, and feeling a sense of failure for a long period of time. So uh, to have them as a support structure going into that was was very substantial for me. I'm very blessed. And, and, and David, so so because you, you basically know knew like, quote unquote, what you were signing up. So um, how were you preparing for the time in the Navy SEAL? Back then, there wasn't a lot of information about how to get ready. Uh, we mm. had these things. A group of us had graduated from boot camp, and then we were we were stationed down at Bethesda Naval Hospital. The the admiral from there was friends with the admiral from the SEAL community, and was like, "All right, you can camp people out here, and they can work in the administrative departments, and then they can train and get ready until their their date comes up." So we went down there and. You know, we had a dive motivator that a guy that had been a, you know, diver and gone to dive school and some other people, you know, a couple buds dropouts were there. And so we, you know, we'd swim and run, but there was no definitive, hey, this is what you need to do. This is the level. And because mm -hmm. I was a, a former collegiate athlete, uh, quite frankly, I was a little arrogant that I, it wasn't going to be, I would be fine. And mm -hmm. so I didn't, I didn't really prepare myself as I needed. And so when I showed up 
the end of November 95 and started training, you know, waiting to get classed up, it was, it was shell shock. I mean, it was like, how does a human being keep this up? There's no way. I mean, you, you run, you know, right around nine miles just to eat, eat chow every day. So just to go to breakfast, to run there is a mile and a half, to run back to the base, mile and a half, to run to, you know, lunch, mile and a half, run back, mile and a half, run to dinner, mile and a half, mile and a half. I mean, it's insane just in to eat. The, the, mm-hmm. the, that's every day, five straight days a week. Um, plus, you know, you're doing all the other insane stuff that you have to do, which is just grinding on you. What Much, kind of stuff? Oh, we do, you know, you do, you know, O courses multiple times a week. You do time beach sand runs. You do, uh, you do uh, log PT with giant telephone poles. You're, you're doing uh, surf passage with boats out in the ocean for mm. out four or five hours at a time. You're doing grinder PTs, which is uh, you on, on the hard surface calisthenics for hours at a time. Um, you're doing, you're going over to the pool. You're getting hammered in the pool. And then the the kicker on top of all this is that you've got these very uh, these very uh, seemingly sadistic instructors <laughs> who who really hold their responsibility as gatekeepers to the community in mm. in, a, in a in very high regard. And and so each one of those guys has this very deep responsibility towards our legacy of who gets to make it through is only the toughest. So, you know, every day the mental torture is every bit as significant as the physical torture that you're being. Mm. How did it look like? um, So let's say, you know, you're getting ready to do, we had a quarter mile O course out in the sand. It's one of the hardest O courses that I've ever seen. Mm. And you're getting ready, your, your turn's getting ready. And it's all this upper body climbing and running and all this. And an instructor comes over, would see you and, you know, you're dry, it's, you know, you're getting ready to start and just be like, you know, ask you some random question about something. And you're like, I don't know, instructor, whatever. And they're like, that ain't good enough. Go hit the surf. And so you're running over, getting wet. And then they're like, get sandy. Now you're covered head to toe in sand. And they're like, knock out 200 pushups. And now you're not 200 pushups right in a row. You're sandy, you're wet. And they're like, all right, are you ready to go? And you're like, and, and then they say go and you're on in their time. And if your times are, are bad, they'll kick you out. So you're wet, you're sandy, you, your arms and your shoulders are blowing out from two, 300, 400 pushups. Before. That's so many, yeah. And now you have to hit this, you know, go through the one of the hardest O courses there is in a specific amount of time or you're kicked out. So little things like that happened all day, every day. So this was like normal, like everyday stuff, nothing out of the ordinary. Well, I mean, if you're a a rich, spoiled kid from Boca Raton, Florida, it is out of the normal, right? (laughs) Yeah, 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 sure, sure. sure, (laughs) You know, nothing I'd ever experienced (laughs) on any team, you know, and I'd been playing organized sports, you know, three, four, five sports a year since I was four years old. Uh, you know, and I've had hard coaches, easy coaches, great coaches, coaches that were focused on being physically fit for, you know, everything Mm. you could think of, but nothing, nothing, nothing could prepare me physically, mentally, or emotionally for the experience of going through that training. David, uh, um, so I was just thinking about it. So basically, do you maybe think that I, I just have like a, a little conspiracy here? Because um, uh, do you probably think that because you were like 
growing up in a great and, and good family that you wanted to have this experience of like going through those tough times? Oh, absolutely. No, I needed mm. it. I, I felt this giant uh, deficiency in my life, mm. right? Because I hadn't ever experienced any hardship. Mm. Uh, I hadn't ever had to uh, work really hard at anything, right? Things, you know, athletically, things always came easy for me. Uh, academic, you know, I, I, I was smart. I, I didn't get straight A's or anything, but I, you know, I went to good I, enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I went to tough prep schools and I got good enough grades and I always knew my sports would get me into college. And so I never, I didn't have to, you know, I worked a couple summers with jobs, but it's like, I never had to want for mm. anything. I never had to face true adversity. So absolutely. I had this deficit that I knew was going to be a problem for me later on in my life if I didn't figure out all these very sub these very significant skill sets that every human being needs to be able to embrace in order to find their true meaning and, and their purpose in life. Mm. So so um, what happened then? So uh, basically, you weren't like preparing a lot for the Navy SEALs. So yeah, when I got there, it was a it was a really hardcore wake up call. I, I got injured pretty quickly. Um, my ITB bands and my, you know, uh, outside of my knees and my legs got so tight that I couldn't walk. And so then I, they rolled me back a class, which was two months. Then because I had the deficiencies, I, I overtrained waiting for that. Like I'd run extra additional at the end of the day to get my legs into shape. Well, I ran so much that when I classed up for the next class, I had stress fractures in both tibias and fibias. You know, I made it through a week of the first phase training and then had to go and I had these stress fractures and they were going to kick me out of training because it was two injuries in a row. And they're like, well, you're broken. You can't make it through training. And through just divine intervention, there was an instructor uh, in pre-phase, it was called PTRR, who, mm -hmm. had, who had noticed that I was always the motivational guy, right? I was always mm -hmm. the guy trying to pull pull other guys along or help other guys get ready or give pep talks daily. Or I was always that guy that was the team player, the ultimate team player. And Do you so wanted to be that guy or was it like just natural for you? It's always been kind of natural for me. Mm. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, I think I played, you know, I played quarterback in football uh, and that's the person at the helm of the offense. And so I've always kind of had that in me. I've always kind of done that. I, I try and, you know, I always recognize that your team needs to be emotionally motivated before they can do anything, right? And so often leadership, people miss that component. They believe that just because there's an expectation of, 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 of job commitment, that people are going to bring an emotional to be emotionally motivated and charged for every every operation that they face but it's just not the case you know everybody has bad days everybody has bad moments they hit you when you don't know so i was always the guy that when i would see that i'd try and lift the individual up mm. to rejoin the team so the team didn't suffer well this instructor who this guy who i owe pretty much my career to one of the many <laughs> um was asked by the base training officer, what should we do with Rutherford? And he said, if he can get healthy, he's going to make a great frogman someday. Mm. So the, by the grace of God and a miracle, the buds gods came and they're like, we're going to give you a double role. 
So I, I got rolled two classes to, to re- have my legs recover. And then I finally classed up with class 208, went through hell week with them, got to pool, second phase, which was dive phase, failed pool comp. Could you please rolled. explain hell week for everybody who isn't familiar <laughs> with it? Yeah, sure. Um, the infamous hell week. Um, hell week is really the the first very significant gate that a student has to push through. Um, it's an evolution. We call them evolutions in, in, in our training. Uh, it's, it's the longest evolution that you face and it starts on a Sunday afternoon and you finish on Friday afternoon. And the, and the crazy thing about it is, um, you pretty much sleep a total of four hours the whole week. Um, the and whole week, the whole week. And you don't, so you go for, 90 to 96 straight hours without any sleep. I mean, there's there, obviously there are times when you're eating that, you know, when you're, once you get past 55 to 65 hours of sleep deprivation, um, you enter into a, a disassociative cognition where your brain is kind of firing on its own. And so you might just, your brain might just shut off while you're sitting there standing you doze off, but then the instructors will scream at you, make you get wet and wake you up. But then, excuse me, we finally sleep on Sunday or Thursday morning. And, and the reason why we take about a two hour nap then is because the doctors have said that if we were to go past that 90 to 95 hour mark, uh, you could have irreparable brain damage or you could have a massive uh, myocardial infarction, basically a heart attack because uh, your, your, your brain is you know, firing when it wants, how it wants, and you, you don't have much control left. Um, and so it can, you know, override your AV node and your atrium and all that. And, and so then you sleep for two hours, you'll go another 24 hours, sleep for two hours and another 12 hours. And so you're secured from the, ev- the evolution called hell week on a Friday afternoon. And when you, f- so when you finish that, most people quit in the first couple hours of the first day, some more laying the next day, and then the finals quit like Wednesday morning. And, and how, how, how do, do those guys quit? They, they just say, fuck it, and they leave? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. They yeah, okay. actually, the instructors drive around with every class. And there's this huge, they'll have 12, you know, 15, maybe 20 instructors that take care of the class because it's, you know, you're dealing, it's life and death stuff here. I mean, you know, it, it, when you're dealing with people, putting them through this hell and they're that exhausted because you're still doing all the same things. You're still doing log PT and swimmer scout passion. You're still running. You're running all over the, the beach and all over the place with these rubber boats, 300 pound boats on your head. And it's just debilitating. Plus, the instructors are just you can never you're never succeeding in their eyes. They're always hammering you. So you're always wet. You're all you develop hydrophobia. I mean, all kinds of what's hydrophobia? Uh, just uh, so I, you're so submerged in the cold water of the Pacific that you shake uncontrollably, mm. right? When you you know when you're wet and you're freezing mm. and you can't stop it no matter what, and it take you have to get you know your heart rate up and increase your heat. But like when you're in the chow hall having a dinner, an instructor will come over and just show you a cup of water and act like he's going to pour it on you, and immediately you start you start shivering crazy yeah it, it, and that's your brain triggering its its defense mechanism of what it knows is coming to start warming itself <laughs> up because you can't warm you're so saturated wa- with water 
that your skin it, it can't it can't warm itself. So internally, your body begins to shake to start the warm. Crazy. Yeah. Did you, so so um speaking about that, did you know like or or like like say um did you thought about like a couple of guys? Oh yeah, I knew this guy will quit. Like um. You know, I <laughs> I was always pretty optimistic. I'm mm. I'm just I try and stay rooted in in that place. I'm obviously, you know, I, to be honest, you know, I I was wondering was I gonna quit? You know, was really? I gonna? Oh yeah, I I you know I there's a lot of guys out there that you'll ask, and I have on on my show many times. Did you ever think about quitting? <laughs> no, not once. No, never, not once. Not. And I was like, yeah, I mean, there were days and hours specifically in Hell Week, you know, Wednesday, uh, you know, I, I thought it was, it was, it was at sometimes by the minute, I, this is like talking myself out of it. This is ridiculous. I, who can yes, deal with it? Speak about this inner dialogue. I, I would Yeah. Love. Yeah. That, you know, the, the as you know, the, the, our, our self speak that we have is the most debilitating there is, right? Mm. Much more profound than any external speak that negative speak that we receive from people. Right? It's way worse in our own heads. And and losing control of that because you're in immense sleep deprivation and you're, you know, you have cognitive disassociation going on. So your prefrontal cortex is in a battle with your limbic system yes. over who's gonna make control. Well, you know, once once you're so exhausted and you're you, you've dumped so much adrenaline and your cortisol levels are off the charts and you know your 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 ability to think clearly and precise and process is it really kind of dissipates and you lose control of it and so this this limbic system mm -hmm. aspect where your amygdalas are basically you know, have taken control of all your your thinking your processing unit man they wreak havoc with you because what all your brain is telling you is this is the worst pain physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, you've ever experienced, you need to separate yourself right now from this. This is not, mm. this is not who you are. This is not the type of person you are. You know, go be a lawyer, you know, go, you know, make a, a ton of money. This is mm. not, you're not cut out for this. So, I mean, I, I was fighting my brain as much as I was trying to survive just the, the week itself to make it through everything. And, and, You know, that was the first uh, first real foray into um, that level of 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 being able to embrace fear uh, at a, in the deep rooted core of who I was as a person. Mm, yeah, I was just thinking about and I know this is like no comparison at all. And, and Helwig is like one million times harder. But um, I've went through like a couple of like very stupid diets, like when I started out in the, in the fitness space. And um, I can just remember uh, like the times when I went to like extreme, like low calories and a lot of exercising. And yeah, I was just thinking about food all the time, all the time. I was like, fuck this. Fuck getting jacked and ripped. This is this isn't worth it. And um, they're having this in a in in a battle like all the time. So uh, it's yeah. crazy. And, and but, but and, of course it's like no comparison at all to Alex. No, I I listen. I I it's all relative, right? We we live in a relative world, and and you know, and you know I, that's why it's difficult for me sometimes. You know, when I'm 
I'll, I'll give a speech and I'll open up the Q&A and inevitably everybody wants to, to dig into the, the psychology and the physicality of Hell Week. And so I always flip it around and say, well, let's talk about your greatest you know, struggles that you've ever gone through. And most people, it, it's, uh, you know, a, a divorce or yeah. loss of a friend. And, you know, and, and I, 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 you know, I've been doing this long enough and studied, you know, the human condition long enough to where I understand how to make those assimilations fit for people. And, and we all suffer, right? I mean, suffering is, is the greatest, the greatest thing we all share as human beings on this glorious planet that we're on. Right. And it doesn't mm. matter. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background, your cultural background. It doesn't matter anything. We all suffer and we mm. all suffer profoundly. Right. And the, and the concept is, all right, how, how do you manage the suffering up here? That's mm. really the, 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 the totality of, of all performances. How are you managing the suffer that you generate upon yourself? And how do you manage the suffering that's generated externally, the unforeseen suffering? And, and that's mm. the key to making it through. And so what I did in those days is I, I, I refined my ability to I didn't I had to get out because I'm you know, my I, my head goes in the clouds literally you know, if I don't control it, I'll live in the clouds. Right. And, and, and I think it's the artist in me. Right. And, and so what I had to do was root myself in the most simplistic form of thinking there was, and that was taking a direct one direction at a time. And that's all I focus. So if you were to say to me, if you were going to, you know, I was in, if I, if, if I was in Bo Crew two or I was with a dive pair or whatever, and they'd say Rutherford, do this. That's all I tried to think about in that moment. All right, get on the ground, do a push up, do a perfect push up. Mm. And I tried to, in that, that monologue in my head, I tried to keep, you know, I would repeat the order. I would, I would say, all right, what do your buddies need to do? Help your buddies in order to keep my brain mm. out of my own pain. And so I really being present, being yeah, focused on the task at hand. That's it. That's it. And then being really, and for me, I, I'm a guy that I need, um, I really need the emotional connectivity as well too. So I became very rooted. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, so often we, I think human beings, we, we protect our, our emotional selves, right? We, Mm. we, we, we interact with people just enough to cultivate healthy relationships where there's a, a modicum of trust. But it's not the I will die for you trust, right? Mm. Uh, or we we have jobs where we go and we work in and around people and their colleagues, but we there's not a sense of 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 genuine love for them, right? I mean, we we protect ourselves from that type of vulnerability emotionally to be too connected with a person that ultimately might let us down in some some aspect, and we we do that. We silo our these relationship pods or teams or tribes or whatever you want to say. Into in the way in the hierarchies that we can manage them emotionally internally. Well, I'm a guy that I need strong, dedicated emotional bonds. I've always had that, right? I, I'm I, I've got a lot of close friends. Uh, I'm I'm a heavily loyal, committed human being to mm. people I'm, I, I love, and and so what I did was I transferred that other side of me that I really believe was a a, a powerful side. And I invested that in the guys that were around me going through this hell. And so, you know, in my boat crew alone, 
we I had guys that went on to do some of the most incredible things that our community's ever been asked to do in the history of our community since 1942. You know, these guys that were pipe hitters in our organization for the last 18 years. You know, one guy in particular was a guy who shot Bin Laden. Uh, Rob O'Neill was in my boat crew in Hell Week. And, you know, here's this guy. I, I, I emailed with him a couple of months ago. It's yeah, funny, Rob yeah, is, yeah. is a good dude. He's he's a solid, solid human being. He was being. On, on, a, on a couple of big podcasts, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We had him on the TNQ podcast mm -hmm. for our 100th show, which was cool. a great. Yeah. When our, and it was really cool because it was the first time that he and Marcus Luttrell had ever been in the same interview together. So it was really fascinating to see them interact. But, uh, but yeah, so I was surrounded by these, these, you know, kids We're all just kids. Um, and I, and, and uh, I laughed. How old was the youngest guy and how old was the oldest guy in your how week troop? So in my boat crew or in my class, in our class, we had an 18 year old kid. Uh, so he's so I'm still friends with him today. His name is Nick Hawks. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He runs a, a paleo dessert company out of California called Paleo Treats. Oh. And he was just this, I mean, he was a hundred, he was five, five, six, five, seven, 130 pounds soaking wet, but he was hard as nails because mm. I, I don't think he had had enough life experience to cultivate other options in real time for him. Right. That was his only option. And and that's a huge component of performance. Right. If you and, and all the people that, you know, we I've interviewed in the past, you know, four years, you know, from Lance Armstrong to to a guy named uh, Charlie Plum, who is a Vietnam vet who stayed for two thousand one hundred nine days in the Hanoi Hilton. You know, they all talk about reducing options in order to enhance performance. Mm, very so nice. when it, yeah when it be so when when it becomes your only option mm -hmm. it, you're, you're yeah where, where should you go after it if you quit you, so you're not you yeah. having said that you having said that um basically it was like harder for you because you knew you would have a good life even when you quit Absolutely. so uh it was Absolutely. just a hindrance Basically. It, it, it was. And I, I was not. Yeah, I was not very. That. Well, I, I'd spent four years and, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't, you know, the, the glorious part about that time in, at, at Penn State was, you know, although I, I didn't perform well scholastically, I certainly enhanced myself academically. So, so I was reading. I don't even know how many philosophy books I read. I don't. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of books about philosophy, psychology, uh, art history, uh, the you know sociology, uh, everything about uh, uh, cultural, organizational culture. You know, everything you could think about about what makes human beings tick. And so I had. I, I was this. I'd spend hours and hours contemplating life. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm thrust into this position where that is the worst possible thing you could do. Mm. But yet I couldn't stop my brain from, from exploring every possible option almost all the time, you know, except mm. for when I was in really deep rooted places of pain where, you know, my limbic system had overridden my ability to kind of process like that. Mm. So, uh, What what happened then? 
I, I was very lucky. Finished Hell Week. Uh, got into. And and by the way, David, uh, I'm so glad that we're talking today. Very great conversation. So. <laughs> Thank you. Honey. Yeah, I've really been looking forward to it too. You're, you're. There's a. You you really know how to conduct a great interview, and I'm always very appreciative of that. Coming from a place when I started, I did. I mean, I stunk for years before I figured it out. So it's always good to see that. Um, uh, you know, a- after Hell Week, I went into second phase. I got, I failed a performance evolution called Pool Comp, which is like Hell Week in the water for a week, and failed that. Got rolled into 209, graduated with 209, and after spending 15 months at Buds, I find, you know, most people, if you do it straight through a seven months, I was there 15 months, and I was kid around. I was like, you know, I was a long haired hippie uh, going into it, you know, art, you know, as an artist, you know, a total hippie college dropout guy and i needed that additional time to to get to wipe that out of me right (laughs) so uh, and then once i finished that i I went on to go through uh what's called 18 delta or jsomc joint special and and, and sorry to interrupt again but um how did you felt after you accomplished the hell week and after you got through it so hell week was it, it was um it was a, a sense of elation, right? You you feel light, you feel euphoric because it's mm-hmm. over and you made it through that. But at the same time, I also felt this profound burden because once you know, you know, you can, you there isn't anything that's going to kill you. You can get through anything. I mean, you're harder than woodpecker lips, right? Yeah. You, you know, you, there, nothing's going to destroy you. Now you got to carry that burden with you always, you mm. know, because in, in any time in the future, when you hit something, you know, you, you, your first thing you do is, is this as hard as hell week? Mm. And, and, and most of the time, most of the things, the overwhelming majority of all things you'll ever go through in your life aren't going to rate. So there's no excuse for you not to accomplish what you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. Right. Your body. So, too, your spirit. so powerful. Yeah. Right. And and so you have this, but it's a, it's a profound burden because there's wow. not a well, because even now, like as a parent, you know, I'm the I'm the father. I've got four beautiful daughters and, you know, I stink sometimes at being a parent. I, I you know, that old Navy SEAL comes out of me, Navy SEAL instructor. And <laughs> and I think I'm going to I'm going to parent, you know, uh, you know, I mean, craziness. And I, I think I'm going to evoke, invoke this hell week mentality, but the, it's the complete wrong approach. It doesn't work for children. It doesn't work specifically for one daughter as, as opposed to another. And I found myself, I'm frustrated and want to throw my hands up and say, forget it. You know, <laughs> I have my fiance, you know, you take care of it, you know? And, and, and it's like, and then I, you know, immediately, you know, a minute later, I'm going, well, that was good. Good job to quit, you jerk. You know, <laughs> you just totally quit in that easy evolution instead of trying to figure out and make it through it. So that's where the burden comes in. There's never a place in my life where uh, I'm free from the the um, self-evaluation in a real. Mm. So, so you so you hold people to a very, very high standard, basically. Always, all, all mm. the time. And, and, and it's. You know, it's, you know, my fiance, she's a former division one. She was captain of the women's field hockey team at the University of Maine. So she's a high performer, too. She does the same thing. So we 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 
inevitably find ourselves many times uh, in conundrums because the standard that by which we want to apply whatever we're trying to resolve, whatever issue, whatever problem, is is much more than what's needed. Mm. And, and, and so, but it's time consuming and it takes this profound effort and focus. And so all the other things in your life get sacrificed in order to do that. But almost where you're like, hey, we don't we don't need to apply this much pressure to elevate the standard to this high when all we need is down here. Mm. So you, your 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 ability to govern the application of uh, I call it the positive application of pain, right? And any solution that we need to accomplish through performance, we have to apply some type of pain, right? And if it's po- if it's positive pain, you have the greater opportunity of accomplishing it in a more expedient time. If you apply negative pain, you you what well, what would be like an example for for positive pain, like exercising, for instance? Yeah, uh, recognizing uh, you need to put in double the time for mm. let's say you're preparing for um, so some type of pitch, right? You're going to give a huge pitch. Millions of dollars are on the line for this pitch. Uh, and of course you rehearse it, right? But mm. you only rehearse it 10 times instead of rehearsing it a hundred times. And the only reason you don't rehearse it a hundred times is you cultivate some type of, of, of you, uh, there's a, a, we as humans, we, we like to alleviate ourselves of pain at all, uh, at every, at every turn, right? We, yeah. we don't want to be uncomfortable. And in particular, when you live in, in, in places where, um, you know, the, the hardships aren't in your face, right? Mm. Like if you, if you lived in the Bahamas right now, uh, with 70,000 people that are homeless, no significant medical, no significant food distribution set up yet. You know, everything you've had has been destroyed. That's very different than, you know, living yeah, in, here in Germany. You know, in Ger- you know, I, yeah, <laughs> everything's great, you know, and all, you know, all's well and, you know, in life, you know, that's a very different application of pain. So, you know, uh, when you apply the pain, how much pain do you apply? And, 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 and so way, the way, uh, you know, I learned how to do it and the way I saw do it on many ways is you, is you take that person's natural resistance, right? We all have, we all have pushback built into our psyches. And so you take that push, you apply the pain and you subtly push that resistance down so you can get that momentum going until that person gets the, gets the, the, that motivational trigger going and then they start pushing into it as well too. Mm-hmm. And, 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 are, and are able to increase performance with that pain being a part of their, their ability to perform. So I call it the positive application of pain. Mm-hmm. Now you also invertly can, can apply negative pain on a person, right? It's essentially the core root of this concept uh, comes out of operant condition and, and behavioral psychology, right? And, And so negative pain is, for instance, um, let's say our class and buds was couldn't get dressed fast enough and and in muster in line and, you know, standing at attention in in ranks couldn't do that fast enough. And and they would always give us these unrealistic times like, you know, a hundred guys, you need to be out of the pool, dressed, boots on, standing in formation outside in two minutes. Ready? Go. (laughs) So you you know, you're not going to make it. So, you know, the two minute mark hits, they drop us down. They make us do a hundred push ups. you know, 
And then they say, all right, you have 20 seconds. Go. We missed the 20 <laughs> seconds. And 20 then, seconds, Ron. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah. It, is, it is. And then they'll go, all right, you, all right, now all you, everybody's got to do 200 four-count flutter kicks. Go. Then you finish those, and they're like, all right, you have 15 seconds. Go. You missed that one. Then all of a sudden, now you're doing you're doing 108 count bodybuilders burpees, right? It's negative reinforcement, right? Mm. And then guess what? It's not you're not feeling the effects on that one, but sure as heck fire the next time you're at that pool and they say, hey, you have two and a half minutes to get out of the pool and get ready. You know the last guy is putting his stuff button in his last button at two minutes and 29 seconds and everybody's in attention, right? Yeah. Negative application of pain. And very few places I found are able to apply negative pain uh, consistency and see positive effects. Uh, this, the special operations community is one place, um, in particular SEAL teams, but most all other performance levels, whether it's professional sports teams or collegiate or businesses, they, you, can't, you simply can't apply negative pain anymore. Yeah, and, 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 and most people, like also like coaches, um, don't apply negative reinforcement, don't, do they? I, Not, not at all. Not, I mean, some coaches are out there doing it, but most people have found mm. uh, if you do that on the collective, uh, there's a negative reaction. Um, if if it's done, uh, if that becomes the standard, if, if the collective group recognizes that you're going to feel pain every day, no matter what, mm. and, and it's and it's not functional pain they will not, fire you i guess you know, they revolt people revolt and whether they stop you know instead of you know being at their computer typing away you know they're over here swiping right while they're at work right and you're getting 50 of their 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 brains while you need them at 100 because you're dirk and they're not going to stay fully committed and focused so it's that very fine line of a of making sure the mm. positive pain in order for you to uh, assess your ability and desire to want to work hard. And, and do you think that coaches maybe for, for, for athletes that they will in the future use more of a neg negative reinforcement or don't you think that coaches at all will in the future use negative uh, reinforcement? So, well, we're, we're in a tricky time. Uh, we're in a tricky time because uh, I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the, the fundamental ideas which have advanced uh, our species mm. <laughs> to where we are, 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 I think there's a lot of um, academics out there that are, have a belief that, you know, we've been doing it wrong for millennia, right? There's an aspect of pain and suffering that shouldn't be a part of the human condition anymore. We're so advanced We're so smart. We're so cerebral. We have so much technology that we should be able to, you know, uh, apply a more utopic approach, if you will. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, 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 if you teach your society to be more cerebral, they'll figure it out faster. Well, that's just not the case. Right. Right. Part of the way we develop as human beings um, in terms of our ability to, to develop resilience, uh, fortuitiveness, you know, all these concepts that enable us for when the, the combat of life, I call it, does come smashing into us in some capacity. Mm. Those are the things we fall back on in order to stay in the fight, right? Mm. So if, if, you, if you don't have that capability, which is, a, I believe, an innate 
component of, of all human beings is the ability to manage and, and, and process pain and suffering. Uh, it's just at, at what level, right? Um, then once you begin to understand that and you have the right mentors, coaches, teachers that help you teach you how to apply your own pain, your own mm. positive pain, now all of a sudden you'll see yourself start moving away from the rest of people in terms mm. of. I know this might be like a bad example, but I was just thinking about a lot of people in the gym, for instance. Um, I see so, so many people like smiling all the time in the gym and having such a great and fantastic time. And when something hurts, they're like, oh. <laughs> think about that think about yeah. think about the, the whole idea of, <laughs> of a gym is to tear your muscle to to fill it with blood right to to build it up to strengthen yeah. it to, and to to increase strength and, and and toughness of the muscle right so what does that require it requires you to feel some pain but yeah. people, but again you know we're in in modern society we're we're really conditioning ourselves Uh, to we're better we have greater opportunity to uh, redirect uh, discomfort than ever before in human history right I mean just you know you go back to last I mean like we were talking about when we first started right with your grandmother I mean you know that's 70 years ago it's not like it's 700 years ago it's not like we're You know, we're 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 talking about you know the Ottoman Empire or anything like that. We're 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 talking about 70 years ago. You know, in in major cities in 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 Germany, there was no food, mm. right? There was you know, I mean, look at Russia. Look at the Battle of Stalingrad, man. I mean, 2.5 million civilians died in the Battle of Stalingrad. I mean, they were cannibalizing each other. You can't get much harder than having to eat other human beings for survival. That's great. right. That's so, crazy. Yeah. So it's all a relative aspect of performance and pain that you you need, and and you know, unfortunately, what what typically happens when that negative pain is applied at, in high high doses over long periods of time, that's where we see you know major examples of of mental illness uh, come into play, or or I shouldn't say mental illness, uh, an alternate perspective, which is has to do with anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, whatever. Yeah, and also take like for instance, um, like Tinder and all those dating apps. People are like just swiping all the time, and they can't even approach a woman like when they are like partying or something. So uh, I that's the great disservice to to technology is is the greatest lessons that we live in this lifetime by far come from the human interaction we have. I mean, it, mm. there's there's no greater, I mean, I, I think about, I've traveled all over the world. I've, I've met people from every background, culturally and ethnically and religious religion. And think to myself, God, what if I was a shy person and I didn't engage and I didn't ask a million questions? What would I have missed out in my life? And And there's really, that's, That's one of the major things I work on when I work with kids organizations or teams or schools is that I really try and help them under the, the desocialization that's happening from our connectivity, right? Although we, we have this grant, we have this living appendage now that makes us the smartest person on the planet, right? Mm. Simply by just touching. And, and, you know, when Elon Musk was on Joe Rogan, his beautiful interview that everybody just got sidetracked by the fact that he was smoking pot on, on oh, a show. Oh, man. Yeah. It's ridiculous. There yeah. was an hour and a half before where he was talking about 
how this appendage has changed human interaction like never mm -hmm. before. And so, you know, one of the greatest one of the greatest attributes we have with in our life is is our ability to process real time information that has expressionism that has facial reaction that has the 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 words are palpable they they they're they're piercing they're coding they're they're nurturing they're they're uh, insightful you know that's what happens in real time human interaction and we really improve as people because of that and when you like you said, when you you see people go to the gym and they don't want to work hard, they don't get the gains. When when people mm -hmm. don't want to want to foster healthy relationships from the beginning through these dating apps or whatever, they're they're already at a disadvantage for these the, really the most beautiful aspects of life, which is the painful process of figuring out whether or not you want to make a committed investment in this other human being because there's some type of connection there. And, and, you know, so it's, it's critical that we, we understand that pain is a very important part of our evolution and development. Yeah. And so, so many people, I think, um, also there are like a lot of old people that are like bashing all those new apps and, and stuff like that. I think there's a certain time and place for everything, but, um, all for those kind of things. But, um, yeah, like a lot of people, like don't have the ability to interact with, with other humans at all. And, They're just like watching porn all the time and that's <laughs> playing video games. And that's yeah. just, that's a crazy <laughs> phenomenon to me. You know, I mean, look at, you know, look at, and I, you know, I, I'm definitely not a choir boy, you know, Navy SEALs, you know, there, there's some times in the background where, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of part of the culture, if you will. And it's, you know, in the modern era, it's a very substantial uh, a part of, of kind of, young adults lives unfortunately but i will tell you this all the the psychological studies i've read is that you know it really anything that dehumanizes another person especially when it comes to the 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 power and of what intimacy and the importance of intimacy that we feel and you know most of the experts all agree that you know too much pornography in anybody's life it, it dehumanizes the other person and, and it reduces that that the intimacy down to just this physical, you know, this raw physical interaction. And, and that's a detriment once again in and of itself. So you have, yeah, I, I agree that the technological advancements we're, we're living in are, I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, yeah. incredible what we're able to do in our connectivity. I mean, look at this. I mean, I'm being interviewed from Germany right now and it's like, you're, it's like you're sitting on my couch right across from me, right? It's awesome. I mean, it's, this is fantastic, right? It's really cool. But there are also a lot of components that, you know, when you look at at, at you know, the geostrategic uh, dysfunction of of cyber insecurity and, and the hacking that's going on, the, the stealing of intellectual properties, the, you know, the, the the level of espionage that's happening right now is like nothing we've ever seen before. I mean, you know, you're you're able to you know, essentially, uh, you know, profile a person in a way that we've never even seen before. I mean, what Microsoft just got busted for Skype and because they're, they're actually recording our conversations, right? <laughs> <laughs> All of them. <laughs> yeah. So, so David, do you think that things will get better eventually? Because like yeah. so, so many people are addicted to video games, pornography, social media, like scrolling like dummies through Instagram all the time. And um, yeah. yeah, I absolutely do. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, 
you know, I for a time there, which was very debilitating, excuse me, for a time there, it was very debilitating. I, I, you know, you work for the CIA and you can, your perspective on the world changes rapidly. Because um, there are a lot of bad people in the world wanting, and they're actively pursuing bad things day in and day out. And not just, like, it's not just a hobby, right? This is their, this is the meaning of their life is to cause harm on other people. And, and that's unfortunate. And, and, it, and, it, and it's everywhere. There's no place, there's no country, society, there's no place that is free from evil. Mm. And, you know, we're, <coughs> we're seeing that with these explosions of, of mass shootings that we're having in America right now. So and many. Yeah. I, I hear like every week there's like some mass shooting in the U.S. It's crazy. It is. And, and, and that goes back to and what they're discovering. Right. It goes back to this. These kids or these young, mostly white male kids that are feeling detached from the society. They're feeling unwelcome. They're feeling they're getting connected to these forums on the Internet, which are breeding hatred. And next thing you know, they're 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 out just killing people at its root. It's it's a it's a dis, it's a it's a it's a high level dysfunction because you can't compensate for your emotional distress. So the way they feel they're going to gain relief is they're going to gain power over other people by executing them, right? And then killing themselves. And and that's that's that that's a phenomenon of our, of our the advancement of our society and technology and how available this type of of mutilation becomes and and how people can perceive uh their more higher level meaning as a result of these these tragic horrific acts you know these acts of of terrorism essentially these violence but i do believe it things will get better right we we if you look at the the nature of human history mm. right you look at the advancements and you look at these you know and it, it really is in the past 15 20,000 years that we've gone from you know, where we were consistently hovering in this space over here of hunter gatherer. Right. And, you know, and we had clans and we had cool, some cool stuff. I'll, I'll never forget. I was in Azerbaijan working and I got to go see uh, 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 a cave painting up there that predated Lacano in France by 20,000 years. And, and so you, you recognize that we, we, we had collective groupings, tribes, uh, stuff like that. But once we became, you know, uh, agricultural and, and mm. we were said, hey, let's we can farm our food. We don't have to be nomadic. You know, let's come together and then let's start building out these rituals of shared collective society. Man, we just started, you know, everything started going up. Well, unfortunately, as you know, men are are. A lot of people would say pre-wired for violence, which is, I think, an accurate statement. I think all human beings have the innate ability to con conduct violent behavior. But men in particular, um, you know, we also invented these 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 very horrific means to annihilate each other. Right. Through gunpowder in, in Asia um, and then now all the way to the to where we're at now, which is nuclear weapons, which is, is a devastating concept. But. At the same time, though, the arts flourished, mm, mm. Right? and and that's that's the thing: the arts, and then the sciences, and then medical flourished. And now, all of a sudden, within the last 
200 years, we, you know, we've gone where from horses pulling, you know, plows in the field, cultivating whatever to where we cultivate enough food to feed the world 10 times over just in the United States. But you know what I mean? And we're, we're seconds away from curing cancer. Hell, there are people that are getting ready to be, you know, space tourists. You think it really think about that's that. That's crazy, yeah. Space tours, yeah. Hey, we're gonna have space tourism soon. <laughs> and so my point is is that you can't get too caught up in how negative everything is, uh, because it, it well, that will that's that negative application of pain, right? Which mm. which really um you're it's you're you're cultivating a mindset, a behavioralism. Uh, a way of thinking that's so detrimental to your own ability to perform if you have this fatalistic view. It's all right to be practical. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't, I'm not Pollyannic. I don't live with my head in the crowd. I still recognize that I need to carry my gun when I go out into society because there are people that want to commit mass murder. So I, you know, but, but mm. am I, am I going to freak out about it? Is doing my, you know, am I living in my basement? Am I agrophoric? I don't leave my house. no, and, and I'm still raising my girls to believe in, in the beauty and power of, of the human condition and what's available to them and, and, and what the world looks like and how many beautiful people. I mean, mm. you know, yeah, there's a lot of evil, but out of the 8 billion souls we have soon to be what by 2030, it's like 9.5 billion or something crazy like that. By 2050, they're saying what 15 billion or something. I mean, 15 billion. Yeah. The, the the trajectory over the next 20 years is as astronomical you know well yeah, with okay. that with that we're also going to see these tremendous j- jumps in technology yeah uh, so I, I i've got a very optimistic do i believe we're we're free and clear of oh catastrophe on on an epic scale no because there's still a bunch of people that you know they want to hurt each other and unfortunately mm. that you can't get rid. There is no place in the future. Well, I mean, now you want to talk religion or the, metaphysical con, concepts, but Stay free to. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mean, you know, my faith teaches me, you know, revelation is coming. There'll be a moment where we'll be stripped of all of our differences, you know, our own earthly differences, and we'll be able to, you know, find peace and harmony and 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 eternity, so to speak, mm-hmm. in heaven or whatever. But, 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 you know, certainly, you know, within, 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 you know, the factual relativity of our existence now, man, you, you, you there's a, you know, if, if 20% of your population and any given population is sociopathic, you got to have some issues, period. Mm. You can't eradicate that. It's the way their brain chemistry is wired. It's the way their emotional uh, development happened from maybe they didn't have good nurturing parents. Maybe they had parents that beat the snot out of them. I mean, I mean, I remember being in Afghanistan for the first time and driving through cities and watching, you know, these Afghan men whip the snot out of, out of their women, you know, and these kids. And, you know, I, 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 it was the most surreal thing I've ever seen in my life. And, I remember being on this one mission where we were out doing this thing and, and we're all set up and, and a nomadic herd Hmm. came through where we were at and not a sing there was like 10 camels and not a single woman or child was on the camel. Right. 
The only child on the camel was the back camel, which was a newborn baby. That was the only, I mean, there were three, four year old kids that were walking in the sands, you know, trying to keep up. And if they didn't, you know, the males of the tribe would go back and whip these kids full as hard as they can with these thick, you know, uh, sticks and whip the women and the women because the kids couldn't keep up. (laughs) So, Oh, I, 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 I want to believe that, yeah, we're the, 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 the people that are sitting in front of the, the control buttons with the, you know, the press mm. that nuclear, they recognize that nuclear annihilation, uh, is not a good thing for the globe. <laughs> um, and, and that's what keeps most people in check, but there are still groups of people that are actively pursuing those weapon systems to, to wreak havoc and cause terror. Now, unfortunately, um, or I should, should, should say fortunately, many of those situations in history where the pendulum swims so far over in, in, in the realm of catastrophe, it kind of resets us morally and mm. puts us back on a, a, a more focused uh, plane of performance on how we treat each other, right? And, and what we do to support one another and, and how we come together. I mean, you know, in the face of this insane tragedy in the Bahamas getting hit by the, the largest recorded hurricane in history, you know, there are literally millions of people contributing money. Uh, I have friends that I used to know in, down in the teams that are over there, you know, with Zodiacs and private planes, and they're going to the outer islands trying to save children and bring them food and medical supplies. So, that still exists on a, on on an epic scale like we've never seen before in the global global collective. So I'm I'm pretty positive. Mm, yeah, but but I I'm thinking about like um for instance like on social media like th- there's like so so much money in it. So basically they're like so many scientists working on addicting people to all those things, and I don't for like me personally I don't see a solution to it because um. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Like, uh, educate people on, on, on the dangers of social media? I don't know. For instance, like, sure, for us, like, it's it's great that people are addicted to social media for people who are creating content, but... Uh, <laughs> right, right, totally. I, <laughs> and then but, you're, then, then, now we're part of the problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> and now we are even part of the problem, yeah, when you go one step further, so, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, uh, listen, we, we, we lived for, for eons without social media, right? I mean, this is a, this is a brand new phenomenon. And I, I, I think realistically it'll be a blip on the radar, right? Uh, this will morph into the next level. Who knows what it'll be, how we'll connect on a, on a, on a more personal, more secure level, but everybody with all fads, Uh, the collective grows weary if if there's not really long-term prominent positive feedback from a particular action, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think people, I'm seeing it all the time now. I mean, like, you know, even, you know, you always see friends of mine, they're like, hey, I'm going off social media for 30 And, and we, we will are, see you in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, and people are detoxifying themselves from social media. That's why with me and, and the way I approach it is I, I early on made a determination that 
listen, when you carry a gun for a living uh, and you're trying to effectuate real change in the world down the barrel of a gun, you quickly, well, not all people, but I, I quickly realize there's a, there's a, a limitation to that influence, mm. right? When you, when you, when you get people to do things out of fear, uh, you're already starting way behind the power curve for any long-term, uh, change in behavioral or cognition or emotional, you know, development, all that. It just is what it is, right? I mean, that's the nature of fear. But so I always said, well, I, I'm going to take what the, these powerful lessons I learned as a SEAL working for the agency, all this stuff as an instructor, and I'm going to I'm going to flip it around and put my own positive motivational spin on it to say, all right, you know, in the midst of all the negative, I call it the negative insurgency, right? That perpetual pressure of of negativity that's coming at us from every direction, whether it's mm-hmm. it's it's who we're following that's making us, you know, crazy on the internet to what we're listening to that's inflaming our, our ideals or even the place we live in our our subculture and our sub society you know yeah. and, and our environments and how they're rapidly changing you know i, I always said well I, you know there's plenty of negativity there's not a lot of positivity so i'm going to be that guy do am i a mm-hmm. negative person heck yeah i mean by nature we all judge I mean, it's built in our to our core survival mechanisms. But, you know, over the last few years, really trying to curtail my judgment in a much more healthy way. And, and, and then in turn, as the information I put out to put out saying, hey, I know it's hard. I know you're suffering, but here's something that might help you with that. Mm. Here's something that can flip it around into a more positive way to where the suffering you you can contextualize the suffering as a benefit for yourself. And that's where I really started to transition and to let people know, hey, you, you're, we're all in control of how we process information, right? Nobody is, nobody has a gun to your hand, head already saying, <laughs> Good example, yeah. right? I, I, yeah, yeah, totally. Th- this, you will <laughs> think like this, you will do, nobody's doing that. Thank yeah. God. I mean, we're, we're not up in the gulags of, of, of Russia, uh, you know, we're not in the concentration camps of, of Mao Zedong of China. You know, we're not down in South Sudan. You know, we're we're not in these places where where the dictatorial regimes that control are saying either think like us or we're going to kill you. I mean, mm. thank God we don't. We, I mean, many people do yeah. live in this and I and I I weep for them and pray that they get out of those, but we're not. And so I think I, another part of what we're responsible for as people that are trying to bring positive content to the world is to educate people saying, Hey, listen, yeah, you know, it's great that you can be connected to so many different viewpoints, but at some point in time, you've got to establish your own viewpoint, your own belief systems, Mm. your own sense of morality, and you have to be rooted in that and then practice that aside from social media in real meaningful relationships. And with that, I think you develop a, a much greater uh, sophistication in terms of being able to battle the the just unending, uninterrupted, 24-7 yeah. uh, conditioning we face uh, by being connected. Yeah, and I think that people who really want to know, they will like find the answers to all their questions. But um, I think Absolutely. that, yeah. 
And what's beautiful too is, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off there, but what's so beautiful, I I love in your, you know, in your scheduling thing, you say, you know, one hour, I don't have much time. We'll just chat. (laughs) Then then you're like two hours, you know, say, let's get in. And then three hours, let's just talk. Let's just go for it. And I I love that because that's what podcasting has done. And and nobody speaks better about that than Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and, you know, all these other guys out there that are saying for the first time, in a long time, you know, you're able to consume content um, that's in long form, right? To where two people are able to have an interaction where ideas are flushed out, mm. right? And, and ultimately, even, even if you're listening to somebody that you oppose their viewpoints and idea, like, for instance, Joe Rogan had Bernie Sanders on on the mm, other day, and, and yeah. Bernie, Bernie, presidential candidate, he's he, a very progressive guy, you know, a Green New Deal, all this stuff, and you know, and uh, you know, in his two-minute sound bites that I watch in speeches he gives, or on the news, or in debates, I, I'm just like, wow, this guy's an idiot. But <laughs> but but when I sit down and I listen to the interview with Joe Rogan and you hear where why the reasoning, the yeah. reasoning where he comes up with it. And I, I'm like, wow, I, I respect the guy's opinions. And, and, and it creates an opportunity for people and why they think the way they do to, to be mm. presented. And I think that's that's what we've needed. We need, you know, better information that enables us to process information much slower much more methodically and much more in line with a sense of, of openness to where we're, we're, we're willing to hear a different viewpoint and, and process it in a healthy way instead of just saying, Oh, that dude's an idiot. Oh, just oh, an Instagram quote for Instagram. Oh God, that's I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Instagram is, is, it's, it's so funny, man. You know, I, and, and, and I, for, you know, I'm on all of them for obvious reasons. Yeah, it too. benefits the business, but I'm also on there because it's a wonderful study within the human condition. What do you mean and, by that? Well, when you think about it, and you follow a person's postings. You know, you and you do it enough, you and you're you're perceptive enough, you can start to dissect the different meanings, and and you can start to see the inconsistencies or consistencies. Mm-hmm. You can start to see the way they put words together, what images they use, why they use them, you know, and, and you really start to get a, uh, you know, you, if you, if you do it well, you can see behind, behind, behind the curtain if you want. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. If somebody is posting like outrageous things and and, and is arguing all the time on Twitter, you know, he isn't like a happy, calm guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right, because it's all bottled up, and then they just unleashes and and, and you know through his anima, anonymity of, of Twitter, right? And that's <laughs> everybody likes to go to war when you can be anonymous. Mm, yeah. So, um, could you please, uh, because we went here a, a bit off tangent, so could you please continue with your story? So, what sure. happened after Hell Week? So, uh, yeah. Yeah, after Hell Week, I, I was able to make it into second phase, die phase. I, I failed a, a big evolution there, got rolled again into another class, finished with class 209. Um, from there, I graduated. I went to my big medical training school called 18 Delta or JSOMC, Joint Special Operations Combat Medic Training in Fort Bragg. 
where I became a, a civilian paramedic, uh, uh, was able to work in the, on, in the ambulances and in the emergency rooms in New York City for my training a month, uh, and really became what I'd always wanted to be, which was a medic operator. I wanted to be mm-hmm. a medic because I wanted that balance um, psychological see i was able to be proficient at taking life but i also wanted to be just as proficient at, at, at saving or giving life back and in order to keep that that duality in 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 reasonable uh balance in my 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 heart my mind my soul so 18 delta went through that went to team one uh what became a in a platoon there did a deployment with their pre 9-11 Became an instructor after that, a SQT instructor, and then What's uh, that? Uh, SEAL qualification training. Mm-hmm. So after the seven months of BUDS, kids now, they go to what's called SQT, which is 39 weeks, however many months that is. So then it's basically a two-year pipeline. So I became an instructor there. 9-11 happened, and I was had the opportunity to get chosen to be in a platoon that went over to Afghanistan uh, not even a year after 9-11 happened. So was able to get a combat deployment in the SEAL teams. After that, decided that was enough, I was good, uh, and got out after that in, in 2003. So that was my time in the SEAL team. So, so, so did you went to war at any point in time? I did. Yeah, I had a combat deployment the summer of 2002 uh, with SEAL Team 1. Went to Afghanistan for about three and a half months. Uh, and conducted missions over there during that time. Yeah. How 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 was the time there? You know, it was it was one of those things that's you know utterly transformational. You 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 can't really you you can read everything you can read about war. You can mm. train for war. You can mentally prepare yourself for war, and as much as humanly possible, in which we do. But you can never truly prepare for what you're going to face or go through or experience. Uh, and so it's a uh, it's it's a big change. It, it, it forces a change. I remember, you know, landing in the middle of the night and going out. And one of the first times we left base and we were at Bagram and going out. And, you know, Afghanistan at that time still had more landmines than every other country in the world combined with landmines. There were about 25 estimated 25 million landmines. And so I had this profound fear that that's how I was going to die, that I because we were driving around in these dune buggies things, and I just put it in. I put it in my head I wasn't going to die getting shot or a sniper or anything like that. I was going to die rolling over an old Russian anti-tank mine that would just turn, you know, us into this mist, right? Because these things were so huge, and I mean they'd leave they'd leave thirty foot craters in in the ground. That's how. (laughs) I'm in, how big these things were and and that that's the way I was going to die. And 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 it, and I lived with that excruciating pain for about about the first month and, and really inhibited my ability to to stay focused and to to, you know, really efficiently do what I need to do. And then finally, I just hit a point was like I had to let it go. Right. I had to Were say, you talking about that with your with your uh, like no. Your comrades. Hell no. Hell no. No. Hell no. Yeah, we, Yeah, no, because if there's any moment at any time that the guys that you're around uh, uh, believe that you're not all there, that you're uh, either questioning your abilities or you're you're scared or whatever, if they know that they lose their trust in you 
and then they don't want to operate with you. And they will literally go to the commanding officer and say, hey, Rutt's losing his mind. He can't stay focused. He's got this, you know, unreasonable mm-hmm. fear of, of getting blown up. He needs to be benched. He needs to sit down. We can't Even take- though they're probably having anxiety as well. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. I don't know a single, even guys that I know that are, that are, have moved into the phenomenon of, of warrior status, uh, mm-hmm. guys that have 400, 500, 600 plus combat missions, uh, which is never, no one's ever even, at least not in modern era. I mean, maybe back in Alexander the Great where, you're, you know, they'd go on these 25 year conquests of warfare, but it was never sustained combat. Like we mm-hmm. were able to, like we've done in the last 20 years, right? There are guys at the tier one level at SEAL Team 6 at Delta Force that have, you know, there was a master sergeant from Delta Force who died in Syria a couple years ago who was on his 27th deployment. Think about that. Just think about that. 27 deployments to a combat zone. And it's not like those guys are sitting around waiting for something to happen. (laughs) They're going after the, the worst possible human beings where... You know, we're getting intelligence from all the collective intelligence agencies out there. They're going after these people. They're doing assaults on them. They're killing bad guys and they're doing it for years on end. You know, and and you think they live with that. It's I can't imagine it's. Well, that's the great challenge. And that's what we're seeing now. Uh, In fact, uh, just I just lost another friend uh, two days ago to suicide uh, as a result of it. And. Um, you know, this year, last year, uh, in the special operations community, veteran community, we, our suicide rate doubled, um, doubled. uh, we had 22 people commit that we know of 22 people commit suicide from the special operations community last year alone. And, and that's the, that's, those are the hidden tragedies. I mean, not, I, I shouldn't say that like that. I mean, all all death in warfare, including civilians, is tra- tragic in nature. But, but when you have these, you know, these people that have just rogered up to go back and back and keep going back and back and back, and and it becomes their existence. It must fuck with your head. It, that, it, badly. it can't be otherwise. It can't be this. otherwise. This is the simple question when I get into discussions about it. the first question I ask people. They're like, well. How is that possible? How can these people who are the most highly trained, highly efficient person on the planet? They're How can they stop? They're human beings. And I go, if you walk a hundred miles into the woods, what do you got to do to get out? Mm. You got to walk a hundred miles out. There's no hundred mile program to get out of how deep in the woods these guys are. <laughs> and, and at that level, when you've done 600 combat missions, you're not walking a hundred miles in the woods. You've you've walked ten thousand miles into the woods. And and do 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 those guys take like therapy or something or? So what we're trying to do now is everybody's recognized that we're in a never before experienced time in history with uh, the amplified time. I mean, I have so, I have one friend who has. What did he say to me? He has five and a half years overseas in war zones. Out of the last no, 18 yeah. years, he spent five and a half total years overseas war zone. In yeah. a war zone, at the highest level, doing the most dangerous things day in and day out, five and a half years of that. And he's only, he's only four, uh, 41. Mm. So think about that. 
No, and and so what they've decided is that, all right, let they have psychologists and psychiatrists that are attached to the units, but still you can't openly go out and seek help, otherwise that questioning is going to begin. So mm. what's happening is they're separating, right, and they they've become institutionalized to warfare, which is the worst possible institutionalization anybody can ever experience is war warfare, and now they're out, they're civilians. Where, where, where do you go? I mean, you mm, got on their own. Yeah. You got, you have a, you have, oh, there's programs, but still many of these people have families, they're married. So they have to jump right into a job, right? You know, that's nothing like you can't even, <laughs> right? Yeah, that, that it must be so crazy, like seeing people die every day and then you're just working in an office or something. It must be like some, it's surreal. And, and it's, yeah. and remember when you, And this is the great phenomenon within the human mind is that at some point when you've been inoculated enough within your stress and 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 that operational environment becomes the normative of all behavioralism, all cognition, all emotional relativity, you you you, you that's normal now. So when you go back to what the rest of everybody considers normal That's so abnormal and, and they don't know how to function within those boundaries because there's so much different. That's why mm. most guys, they start abusing drugs, alcohol. Uh, they, they don't seek the right help because, you know, our VA system is pretty broken. But uh, and, and nobody wants to go openly admit they need psychological treatment or help. And, and it just spirals. And before you know it, these guys take their own lives. So, so um, what are the things called where you throw your trash in bins, right? Yeah. 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 And um, I was just thinking about because I know one guy who, who went to Afghanistan and um, he basically lost a friend um, through a bomb like near bin. And um, now, like a couple of years later, he's still afraid to walk uh, near, near bins. So it's it, it does. And, and that's that's the remarkable aspect of trauma. Right. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to figure out is you experience trauma. And, it, and it's in your brain, right? And, it, and if anybody understands, or, you know, if your audience doesn't understand the way coding works on, on your, your um, neuro, on a neurological level is everything you experience during every day is coded. Mm. It's coded into a particular type of memory. Even things that you've already uh, got uh, planted in your brain, in your code, right? Uh, a glass of water. It, it's not just the water. It's The time, the place, mm. the the people that were around, the environment, that were the sun, the lighting, every memory every day is is recoded at night when you go to sleep. But what we don't understand is those trauma coding, it codes in different ways and in different places. And so, like you said, he walks by garbage bins. That yeah. coding, that coding triggers. And although he can very well logically say, "I am not in a war zone right now." The power of that coding overrides his logic. His and logic and reasoning. His, ra his rationality, his reasoning is overridden by the, 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 react, the reflexivity of, of his brain. And boom, he's right back into that stressful state, that state of, we call it hypervigilance, uh, or other people call it hyperstate of alertness. And all of a sudden, his brain, to protect itself in the body, starts dumping in, 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 in 
unbelievable levels of cor- real-time wartime yeah. levels of cortisol uh, adrenaline epi and all of a sudden he's back in that that warlike state. and and i think that those people they they knew it's irrational but they can't help them you can't stop it there's mm. nothing you can do and that's why you know through really good cognitive reconstruction and therapy um you know you're 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 able to compartmentalize it uh in a way uh where you 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 can deal with it right it's like people mm-hmm. who are schizophrenic right through great therapy and some decent drugs or whatever they, they know it's happening they're shifting they're going into another space uh and, and they have a a plan of attack on how to either wait it out redirect it mm-hmm. shift it back and that's what we need and i think with bipolar people it's also the same yeah oh absolutely absolutely i mean it's i mean it's a it's a You know, and, and everybody, what's so hard too, when you're, when you have whatever variable of mental illness you're dealing with, you know, what's so hard is, you know, getting people to have enough compassion, uh, and enough empathy to be patient and, and not judge you so dramatically because you're just, you can't, it's not your fault. Right. And, and, you know, you don't want to live with any of these abnormalities. You don't want to live with this mm. disruption in your your ability to think and feel in a normal perspective, but, but it happens and it's always going to happen in some particular way. You can't, we haven't figured out how to erase it yet. I mean, there's all kinds of people out there that, that believe within the next 10 years, you'll be able to get an implant, attach it to the, the part of your brain. When you do feel the post-traumatic stress, it lights up the most. They'll cut it open. You'll put an implant. It'll, it'll send a pulse. You'll be able to push a little button or something It'll, or it'll just trigger naturally as the cortisol levels induce. It'll, it'll dump a little shot of SSI uptake inhibitor, or it'll, it'll dump a, a micro dose of MDMH or something, and it'll stop it in its tracks and, and calm you down and be able to process. I mean, that's like that's, scientists are saying that. It sounds oh, like yeah. some, some, I don't know, sci-fi novelist is, <laughs> yeah. No, Great. we're. We're, we're definitely getting close for sure. I mean, I, I think that's, that's the immediate future. So when you start to think about that, right now, you start getting into the, the wild possibilities of, of, all right, if we do have people that have, have sociopathic tendencies or even psychopathic mm. tendencies, will we be able to, I, you know, through some form of testing, identify them, put the implant in reduce their innate desire to to commit whatever atrocity not even atrocity but whatever pain inflict any type of negative pain on on society or people they love or whatever to control that is that what's going to get us into that space where we're going to see our next great uh, uh age of enlightenment i mean you hope mm. but before then i don't think you know we, we i don't know if it's going to happen yeah and i think that Those people, I, I, I'm sure that they are trying to help themselves. I'm sure they're reading like all the books and all the articles on the Internet. But like you've said, um, they're still struggling with it. It's one of those things that we found. And I, I work specifically with this really beautiful organization called the Synchrony Program. And they run it out of Methodist Hospital in Houston, Uh, just received their first giant grant. They just got a, a half a million dollars for any Texas veteran to go through this program. Because what they've seen is we don't we don't suffer from just one 
one thing, right? It's not just post-traumatic stress. We're battling traumatic brain injury. We're battling uh, orthopedic injuries. We're battling uh, emotional injuries. We're battling the stigmatism of asking for help. We're battling mm. endocrine issues. It's Most also of like us, the stigmatizing also big problem, isn't it? Huge, yeah. huge, the biggest. It's the mental the hurdle. Biggest. It's the mental hurdle you have to overcome to recognize I need to be patient to find the right help for me because what we've seen is it's not this general approach whatsoever everybody's unique and god Mm. thank god right that's what makes the world so interesting we all are all so beautifully unique but each person requires their own unique program to deconstruct the issues at hand and then figure out what the right sequence is of coding to get them to a place where they can manufacture the right plan to to maintain some semblance of uh, in in some healthy state of mind or state of being mm. and and what is your take on the whole medication thing so do you think that soldiers should be like medicated right after after they they've been in in those war zones so i've seen the whole spectrum right i've seen guys you know walk out of the military on 12 15 i had one friend that was taking 22 different medications a day 22 22 And he was so suicidal that it was ridiculous. And just by sheer coincidence or God's divine grace, we intersected together. I started helping him. I got him into a program down in Texas, uh, and it, it brought him back. Another friend of mine, every turn of the way, they put the doctors in the in 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 the Navy put him on uh, a, a medication that didn't fit his genetic makeup. Which one of the side effects of that is high level suicidal inclinations. So we want they put him on this medication. Now he wants to kill himself. Well, as a result of that, those episodes, now he's in this massive custody battle uh, with his soon to be ex wife, and she won't let him see his child because in the past he was on he was suicidal because the docs gave him the wrong medication. So oh, that's that's on. the tra- that's- yeah that's the tragic nature of of the worst aspect of, of medication. I, I do have some buddies that are taking low doses of stuff that it works great for them. I have a lot of buddies that are medicating themselves with THC. Uh, unfortunately, the overwhelming majority of, of people that I know or have known or my myself that have suffered, you medicate with your own stuff, right? You go get the booze, the drugs, mm. and you're trying to yourself. You self-medicate. And it's just a, 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 such a negative aspect that it, it really, you know, that's what ultimately, you know, leads into the more advanced depression and then ultimately the suicide. So I, I believe in the right dose administered by the right team who's done the right research, who's, who's done your blood work in, in, the, in the most excruciating minutia, minutia, right, really understands how your brain, pro, your brain especially, and then your body processes these meds, then experiment in a clinical setting what's going to work right but there also has to be a plan for all this other stuff because mm. right? all connected right it's all connected um but you know this this group of people down in houston the synchrony program is they're really on track uh they you know they've already saved one of my very close friends lives uh they you know they're they're getting ready to put four more guys into the program that are all struggling significantly so uh they're doing it right You know, the challenge is the long term 
long-term support. David, I was just thinking about your friend, like, going through those war and all those shit and then going through a divorce. I think this is like, I have no words for it. So, uh, well, and here's, you know, and, and the, the great tragedy is, you know, nobody, the courts don't care about a service. They don't give it. They're like, they don't give a fuck, right? No, at all. They're like, you're, he's nuts. He's guy's crazy. He doesn't deserve his kid and all this, you know, and, and it's just, and then, you know, and, and so, and this happens so often. There's a stigmatism that's attached to special operations guys, or even anybody who's been in war that, you know, you always got to be looking out of the side of your eye, you know, are they going to blow up? Are they okay? Do they want to kill anybody? Are they, you know, when, when all they want is just an opportunity to reintegrate back into society mm. and, and reintegrate in a positive, nurturing, healthy environment that has patience with, you know, the, the roller coaster that they're on, not by, well, it was their choice to go in, but, uh, you know, unbeknownst, you don't ever, you don't ever estimate the power and the impact of what you're going to face. You just can't at all. And I think the media is also portraying this image of, oh, yeah, is this guy going to blow up? We should watch out for him. And yeah. Oh, it's try now what, what's going what really is we're at this very difficult crossroads, I believe, especially in America. I, you mm. know, I, I don't pay enough attention to foreign uh, cultures anymore because I'm, I'm just not involved and don't just don't do it as much anymore. And, you know, I, what 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 we're seeing now is. Because of all of this, we're we're really into this this gray area of all right. We know this person's over here. They've struggled. They've got these issues. We're not quite sure because their medical records are you know that's their own personal stuff. But we know, hey, you know, I need to call the cops and tell them, hey, can you just watch this guy for me? And the cops show this up. This is the actual thing. This oh, is yeah, an actual thing. Oh, yeah. It just happened the other day. Uh, a Marine out in Portland, Oregon, uh, was walking down the street, and there's a big organization over here called Antifa, mm -hmm. uh, and they're kind of social socialist, fascist-type guys who believe the government is trying to oppress everybody and, you know, all this crazy. And they just – it's a bunch of kids that just want to wreak anarchy, right, mm -hmm. and, and, and not come to the table for actual discussions, right? It's, it's, it's juvenile, right, if you will. And so this other young former Marine with combat was out there and they were tried to attack him or whatever. And he fended himself off. And then someone stuck a camera in his face with a mic. And he said, you know, if I'll tell you what, if these guys threaten my life, I'm going to kill them all. I, I know I'm highly trained. I know what I'm doing. And if they attack me, I'm going to defend mm -hmm. myself and kill all of them. Well, the next day the police showed up at his house. They, they took all of his guns they they interviewed they took what? all this medication yeah and and, and be, be, because this guy was just defending himself from from those with, with crazy people yep well the same thing is going on too with you know uh, an attack on free speech right one we you know hate speech has become just you know it's everywhere especially on the internet and people yeah. just the way they attack each other is just with this vitriolic hatred because of whatever yeah. reason right well, now we, in our infinite wisdom, we're like, all right, well, that we're going to say is illegal and that's hate speech. And we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to fine you, or we're going to potentially incarcerate you for what you said and what you're, you know, 
now we're moving into this very bizarre place where, you know, who's the moral police, right? Mm. Which is, which is when you look Critter. back. <laughs> Jack Dorsey. <laughs> right? Right? We, yeah. we don't like what you're saying, so we're going to remove you. And then Google, I mean, Prager University yeah. is in this giant lawsuit against them, con, you know, constricting certain videos. So it's like, wait a minute, where, what's happening here? And so, again, going back to that, that application of pain, you know, I, I think, you know, as we, we all desperately want to protect the freedom and rights of, of, of our culture and our people, we're, we're, there's this fine boundary that if you cross where you start to go and you start to encroach on people's rights and restrict people's rights because of your fear of the particular person. Right. And that's, I mean, hell, we, we, we've done that. We did that for, for centuries in America with racism, right. Our, mm. our, you know, our, our systemic racism and oppression of, of black people and, and all these things. But you know, thank God we had it, our age of enlightenment, the civil rights movement with Dr. King. And, you know, we've made these wonderful advancement, you know, the first, you know, real foray into uh, abolishing all types of slavery, all types of oppression as, as much as we can. I, I think a lot of other countries around the world are attempting that, too. I, I think Angela Merkel was was that was her intention. Right. Why the mm. flood of immigrants who came into the country is Germany, like, yeah. Hey, we, we represent the ideal future of, 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 of the way of thinking. Let's but bring Germ it. Germans hate it. Germans. Oh, hate I know. It. I, oh, well, yeah. why? because they're intensely nationalistic. I'm not speaking like for, uh, I have no opinion on it, but, uh, right, right. yeah, yeah, but well, no, Germans I mean, hate it. Like, well, yeah. it's, it's a challenge because what's happening. You're, you're the core German culture is under in their impression under assault. Instead, yeah. of, instead of trying to figure out how to assimilate the two. Now, there's another challenge, too, is, you know, people from different cultures, in particular people from very rich, ingrained, historic cultures, they don't want to assimilate either. They just want, don't mm -hmm. want to be impressed anymore, right? You know, look at certain places in London, man. Certain places in London have, you know, are held under Sharia law. They're, you can't go there. You can't integrate. They... You know, you, if you're an outsider there, you, you go in, you're going to be beaten by a mob or whatever. So, you know, it, it goes both ways. And, and that's the great challenge, I think, within all humanity is, is how do we negotiate this rapidly changing multipolar world, which we're all interconnected, right? How do, what do we bring forward that creates opportunities for people to heal together, for people to mature or grow together? What is the dialogue that needs to t take place, right? And I believe, you know, through, through, you know, you know, podcasting, through better content mm -hmm. online, there's a lot more uh, opportunity to seek out information that's going to hopefully at least get people to, to stop and reassess their, their value system, their belief system, their moral competency, and, and then their, their, their worldview, right? Mm. It's really about about you know how you how you look at your the, your immediate world around you, and then how you're going to associate that world with the you know ever growing, ever uh, consolidating world beyond that. So, so David, how how were you like personally dealing with with the war when you went uh, to to the war zone? 
Like, yeah, I, I went through an interesting uh, experience where I had some guys almost die and had to, you know, render care to them that really left a mark on me and, you know, not believing I did everything I could have done to, you know, to save the guy, most of this guy's muscle tissue that got blown out and all this stuff. And so it really affected me dramatically that I wasn't able to do my job at the highest level. And and that lingered with me for many, 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 many years. And, and, and also when I got out, I got out because I was very frustrated with the political nature of, of warfare. I, you, you don't realize that, you know, when you're a Navy SEAL initially, you're a young kid, you think that's it. You're the be all end all of war fighters. Mm-hmm. And all, you, all you really are is you're this, you know, on a chess, you know, an, a, a chess board, you're, you're the pawn right on a chess board. But you're the the felt, the old felt that's like hang a little one little string that's hanging off on the bottom of the felt piece, right? That's what you represent, and it's a chessboard that has, you know, hundreds of millions of pieces. Mm-hmm. So when you recognize that as a young person, that it's hey, depressing. It, it's depressing because here you are, you believe you're this tool for good, this this precision tool for good that is being underutilized because there are other things at stake, but you don't understand the magnitude of those other things. And, and, and thank God those other things do take precedence because the human species avoids a lot of carnage as a result of those political espionage, geostrategic things that are going on in back rooms and conversations and covert and secret stuff that, I mean, a lot of carnage is avoided as a result of that. You know, mm. of people being able to orchestrate uh, that very needed and required ability to uh, interact with each other with the very real assumption that if, if you don't figure it out, you know, millions of people could die. Mm. And, and thank God, I would say the overwhelming majority of leaders in the world recognize that potentiality. And so they they operate with that in their mind, right? Now there's other negative aspects of why they do certain things for sure. But I think, you know, I, I want to believe at, at all leaders core, no leader wants their, their people to die, right? Their, yeah. their forces, their people, no leader really wants that to happen, right? You, you can't ultimately be a long lasting, healthy leader. If, if you're the one that caused 10 million deaths in your country. So, um, so I, you know, I, I just, and, you know, for me, it was a, a long process and, you know, I immediately after a year out, I tried real estate and some other thing, but I jumped right back in and went to work as a private military contractor, started deploying again. Cause that and was, did my, you have any problems with suicide and depression and anxiety? I battled, yeah, I battled some depression the, like three years after I got out, uh, had some in suicidal inclinations for sure. Because uh, I really felt this profound guilt because for us, I left in the summer of 03. That that next year, Iraq kicked off. Mm. And I, I thought Iraq was going to be another 100-day war. I didn't think it would turn into this insane, long-lasting, devastating war that it did. Uh, and so when all my buddies started going to Iraq and then in 04, 05, when everybody started dying – because uh, the insurgency picked up significantly, they became organized, they got well funded, they had lots of weapons. Uh, you know, they started killing our my my friends started dying, and and now I'm here on the sidelines, you know, working mm. as a contractor, not really in the fight, so to speak, and all my buddies are dying. That guilt 
really devastated me. Of you not being there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, really felt this really horrific guilt. And, you know, and, and, and I would say just within the last three or four years, five years, I finally am uh, uh, relieving myself of those uh, unrealistic pressures and, 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 and really uh, trying to uh, live in a space to be comfortable with the time I did give, the experiences I did have are enough to validate my assumption of what was required of me um, and, and to be okay with the amount of service I gave, the type of service I gave, the quality of service I gave, and, and not to hold myself to that crazy, how weak, unrealistic mm. standard anymore, where, you know, I'm constantly beating myself down internally because I, I, I don't have 600 combat missions like my close friends. You know, I, I, I didn't go to multiple war sites around the world, get in all these types of huge battles and engagements. I don't, you know, I don't have those credentials. And, and it's okay. I don't need them. Mm. Uh, and ultimately, my purpose in life was was not as much to be this grand uh, purveyor of warfare, right? This grand operator, but to experience it enough to where I can take it and translate it. The the, the mindset, the 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 core root concepts, and you know, in terms of mental performance, physical performance, and correlate that so. It, it props other human beings up, civilians up to better succeed in, in, a, in a very challenging world of today. So, so David, could you please speak to like um, the worst moments that you've had as a Navy SEAL and the best moments? And also, could you please speak to like when did you felt that after the war that, that you are like back to normal again, that you're feeling good <laughs> and things are going great and. Well, you never get to go back to normal. You never get to go back to the kid that you were, you know, when you're raising your right hand and you're taking your oath and you're joining the Navy. You, that kid's gone and that person's gone forever. And the deeper you get into the woods, the further away you ever get from seeing that person again. Now, you can't erase that person that all of those experiences are still within you right you, you mm. still had all those wonderful experiences as a young person you still had all those core beliefs all of, of you know that all those it's all there but now you it really takes significant work to pull that person you know through the woods so to speak down those dark paths And, and, and live with that person uh, um, side by side, the other, almost that state of duality, right? Mm. And so for me, a big component of that was becoming a father. A big component of that is my new fiance. She's really helping me get back to that, that artist, right? Because mm. really at my core, I think that's what I am. You know, that, you know, some of the major gifts that God gave me was my ability to love and be passionate about art and creativity, and the best of what the human condition is about. And so I've really spent a lot of time over the last three to five years getting back to that, trying to understand who that person is and how to live with them, you know, in, in conjunction with this, this warrior over here. And the fact that it's okay, I don't have to be the warrior anymore. I can put, mm. I can put that armor down now, don the armor of God, and start trying to be a teacher and, and help be create, help people become more creative 
with the development of this new armor in their life that's going to help help them flourish in you know under the negative insert the assault of the negative insurgency so that's what i've done uh the best so, so you are so 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 you are basically you are not struggling anymore with with those guilt and fe feeling good for not being there and fighting and i mean i still i have day i've ba i've bad days for sure like i have bad days mm -hmm. where my anxiety my post-traumatic stress will flare up i i become short-tempered uh, my anxiety is huge road you know road rage quite a bit mm -hmm. um and and just um, i'm tense i'm in this hyper vigilant state um and it, you know everybody feels the effects of it unfortunately And so if I don't get enough exercise, if I don't get enough sleep, it comes on immediately. Sleeping's critical. If my diet stinks, uh, mm. you know, if, if I, I don't feel a sense of advancement in my career, I'm real hard on myself. So, you know, I have all these triggers mm. and it's just being very conscientious of when, when, when the trigger is pulled, I'm in this, this hyper this hyper state of whatever you want to call it now uh and to be able to be open towards external influence you know go getting body work done uh calling my psychologist when i need to uh having conversations with my fiance that are uh non-confrontational that mm. i you know and, and to be open for feedback um time with my children to be present with them and their innocence mm. you know all these things that you do And then, and then, you know, my, my work, you know, being able to interview cool people or to be able to get on the microphone or my daily dose on frog logic and my motivational posts, I give all a component of creativity that helps me manage and balance it out as best as possible. So, so, so you think that, um, basically you are like more, more like if you are not sleeping and, and you, your diet is not on point, you're like more, more, uh, accept, uh, what's the word? Like susceptible. You, susceptible to 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 anxiety depressions and quote-unquote not normal people right absolutely absolutely mm. i think everybody is it's a part of everybody because what you know stress is not this fictitious thing that floats around in the air stress is an actual physiological response there's there's different types of 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 hormones and protein shifting in your brain and in your body And all of those things affect your ability to have some type of homeostatic, you know, state of being, right? Mm. That, that, that place of where everything's kind of functioning. We got good flow state and mentally, you know, we feel strong emotionally. We have, uh, we're, we're strong physically. I mean, that's the number one thing, man. I'm, I'm such a physical creature, you know, you know, the, my physicality has played such a critical role of my existence from the time i was a baby that now as my you know i have neck pain i got lower back pain my left knee is going to be need to be replaced you know i've got poor circulation from a lot of stuff I, you know i've got a bad gut you know all those things as i'm getting older i'm 47 they're starting to present so instead of going for you know five mile runs every day i have to do five mile walks right mm. instead of going to the gym i need to do yoga right and mm. uh, instead of uh doing some killer crossfit workout i go paddle boarding you know instead and and to really find a greater sense of tranquility within mm. my physicality because i don't need to prepare for war i need to prepare for my own mental health And that's the war I'm in right now, right? That's the war I'm in. A different war, yeah. It's a different war. It's a war of, 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 
it's a war. I don't want to call it you know, stability. I think that's too simplistic of a term. It's a war. We're all at war with ourselves trying to manage that negative speak in our heads. Mm. But that's all translated by uh, our physical, pre- our, what we do fit for ourselves physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. So if I begin to struggle emotionally about something, you know, I'll, I'll jump in the Bible and I'll, I'll read the Bible more or I'll pray more or I'll talk about God more with people. And, you know, and there's an, an essence of reassurance that exists within that for me. And that that tempers the other stuff. It brings me back down. Right. And so you're always trying to figure out how to negotiate this this roller coaster that every human being is on with our suffering and our pain, uh, trying to temper, you know, so, you know, this, the, how steep the descensions and inclines are, we mm. try to get it a little bit more like, you know, the kitty rides instead of being on the crazy ones where you're doing the triple loops for like five minutes straight. I mean, that's, mm. that's the great challenge that we all face every day in our lives. Yeah, and I think that for, for most people, not not trying to diminish your problems at all, but um, I think that for most people, the problems today are mostly mental because like in the first word in Germany or in the US, like most people like have their basic needs met. They have food, they have shelter. And yeah, most problems I think for the world today, especially um, are those m- mental problems. I agree with you. I mean, I remember my first missionary trip I ever did, I went down to Haiti. And I remember we were working in this teeny little town called Bondo. It wasn't even on the map. We had to go, like I had to go on this intel gathering to figure out where the name came from and why they called it that, the right spelling, you know, who who it belonged to in terms of the like the local governance. None of this existed, but yet we were building a school there, right? And so I go down, I'm doing all this research. And I remember, you know, at one point we came to this teeny, you know, you know, few little huts and these little, these baby, these kids were starving and they were eating these things called dirt cakes and they were a little What's bit of that? flour. It's, it's like, it's a little bit of flour and some other stuff, meal mixed with actual dirt to make a, a cake. And they're eating this thing to survive. And I'm like, what the, how is this possible? Right. I mean, this mm. Haiti's 90 miles away from Miami and yet there's extreme poverty here. How is this possible? And and so, yeah, uh, first world problems are are nothing in comparison. What you, what they figure? What possibly four billion people in the world are are hungry every day? I mean, think about that the, the staggering nature of that number. So many people. Yeah, it's I crazy. think. Yeah, every second person lives on two dollars a day. So think about that. Think about <laughs> that. Uh, now, now that's I, I mean, if, if you've never been in, in a third world country before and you don't know what that physically, mentally, you don't know what it smells like. You don't know the the the, the I, I mean, literally the physical anxiety that's induced from seeing that kind of poverty yeah. is so debilitating, you know, that, you, you know, you you hopefully you, you your level of gratitude is, you know, skyrockets, which for me, that's what happened every every time I was able to to bear witness to that that reality and had the fortunate enough experience to be able to see that in many different countries. And and so and on top of it, the, 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 the affliction of war and what that does to a society and a culture as well, too. I mean, it's devastating. Right. Mm. And and so. 
Oh, yeah, I, I think it's all relative, right? It's all mental challenges that we're all facing every day. I mean, some people, yeah, have the physical, maybe they have the, the, the disabilities they have or even mental disabilities, right? But really, every day, all day, we wake up and we have to muster some type of reason to get out of bed, to go through the day and to go back to sleep and want to do it the next day. And, and, and there are a lot of uh, interruptions to whatever that purpose may be. Many people, most people, in fact, don't have very clear purpose at all. Mm. And that's why one of the big components of frog logic is teaching people how to start the pathway towards finding greater purpose in their life, right? Because we all need to have meaning. Without meaning, we have no relevance. Without relevance, you know, we're, we're just kind of allowing life to, to drive, you know, where we end up and that's just not a healthy place and i and i also think um it's because uh recently um some some guy who is like in my age like also like 24 25 26 or something he he killed himself and um well, where was this uh here in germany hamburg okay. and, and why and i don't know why but um he just jumped off the bridge and um Yeah, killed himself, and uh, a, a couple of days later, his younger brother also killed himself because oh. he couldn't deal with the situation, oh. and he was like 18, 19, 20 or something, and um, it's so crazy because this guy who killed himself, he was like always posting on Facebook, like when he was walking his dog, and like, I, I, I would never thought, never thought this guy had any problems at all, and nobody thought this guy had any issues at all he he just married um just i think he was expecting a kid or had a kid or something and it's so crazy because um like a lot of people assume that you know that this guy has problems and you know that this guy is depressed but nobody knew it like nobody And, one of the, uh, one of the one of the greatest lessons I learned from my father growing up, you know, you, you grow up as an attorney's kid, your perspective on on life is very different because every day, all day, all he's dealing with are people's most extreme problems, like real yeah. problems, right? And and so you begin to realize, and very early on, he would say to me, David, you know, you know, every human being has problems. Hmm. It's just at what level. And the real key is at what level you're going to feel empathy for them, right? And, 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 and when you can live in that space and recognize, man, that all human beings suffer. I don't, I don't care. You could be a billionaire and hell, I mean, look at the billionaires and how dysfunctional they are right now. Look at that Jeffrey yeah. Epstein guy. I mean, that guy was a tragic figure and, you know, raping, prostituting you know, hundreds, if not thousands of underage girls for his own amusement. I mean, that's, that's, that's some twisted stuff. And, and, you know, everybody's got problems. And if we were just able to be not even a lot more available to that truth and think of just how awesome, and I know I'm not saying anything new. I just, what I try and do is say, Hey, you know, before you jump down someone's throat for, cutting you off and hear that. And I'm, and listen, I'm just as guilty as the next guy. I mean, you can't, mm. can't be a Navy SEAL and not be quick to jump at and judge, right? That's what we do. It's how we stay alive. And, and, but you know, now in my life, I'm really, really making a concerned effort to, to temper the level of my judgment in a way. So there's always a, a, a component of empathy that's there to say, you know, when the initial, 
guttural reaction comes in your head and you say, oh, look at that person and this, that and the other, mm. to then immediately say to myself, wow, I wonder what they're going through. Mm. I wonder what I'm not seeing in their life is a challenge to them. Yeah. And, and just that little bit alone, it, it takes, I think it, it can relieve the tension of our own lives a bit. To, to realize, and the greatest thing that ever happened to me in all of my struggles was to finally recognize and realize that I'm not alone, mm. right? right? My problems are not, they're not special. They're not, they're not wildly different. Like I have- You like are not I, this, this unique yeah, snowflake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, how I'm processing and how I process them are unique and special. But man, post-traumatic stress, people have been going to war with each other for millennia. Right. Uh, people, uh, you know, people have gone through divorces for forever. Right. I, you know, people struggle with anxiety and depression forever. So the, the, the very re- reality that within my own pain prior to which I isolated and tried to keep a secret and contain so nobody mm. like this guy, apparently. Yeah, it, it drove me to the worst states. But now, after I sh- I'm much more uh, available to share and to discuss and to be open and, and acknowledge other people's issues and challenges, uh, it's wonderful. It's mm. wonderful. And I think that's why, you know, the, the Team Never Quit podcast was so successful because we have people come on and they share their greatest never quit story. And Nine times out of ten, a greatest never quit story is a, is a story that has profound pain and suffering involved in it. Yeah. And, and and the reason people were responding as much as they did is because we all are searching for we're all searching in some way, shape, or form for that validation, the approval of those parents, right? Mm. In some way, whether it's the approval of our parents of our friends, of our loved ones, of our children, of our, uh, of our colleagues, teammates, whoever, we're all really just searching to be validated in that construct, all right, in order to ease our suffering, to say, hey, I acknowledge you, I love you for who you are, and I acknowledge you're going through pain as am I. I mean, mm. that's, that's the ultimate goal. So how do we get people to be more willing to do that is you know that's the that's the million dollar that's the billion dollar question right yeah really tough question really tough question so uh david could you please uh, speak about like what were the the worst times and the best times as a never seer so uh well and anytime losing a friend is is tragic you know i you know losing my buddy two days ago is a horrible reality of it Uh, I lost uh, my buddy Scotty Wirtz, who I was close with, got blown up in Syria last uh, January. Uh, You know, so those are the worst moments. You know, we've lost, man, I I I hate to get the number right, but they're they're happening so frequently now. My last count was, it was like 118 guys had died since 9-11. Something like 88 combat-related deaths, uh, a bunch of training deaths. But uh, we're a truckload of suicide, some contractors, deaths. You know, my close friend, uh, Ty Woods, and, and my other friend, Glenn Doherty, they died in Benghazi. You know, uh, so, you know, it, it's that's the hardest part by far mm. is that 
you develop these very profound connections with these people. Uh, you, 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 there's, there's this ingrained assumption that they'll die for you and you'll die for them. And then all of a sudden they're gone. And now, you know, having been out as long as I had and, and kind of, you know, my last time working for the agency was in 2011. So it's been a while since I've been out and away from it. And so, and with four daughters now, really, I'm, I, I'm, I'm allowing my perspective to change a bit mm. and, and, and to, you know, to say, all right, you know, it was a critical thing. I needed to do this. It got me to where I am in my life, but, but man, man, why are some of these deaths unnecessary? Right. Mm. They're a component of this loss. That's uns- I mean, you can't you can't be a warrior and expect you're going to have a career without anybody, you know, or love dying. It's just not part of it, especially at the at special operations level. You're just it is what it is. But nobody, I, nobody I know ever imagined that, you know, we, we would have 118 guys. Dead so many in, people. Yeah. yeah. In 18 years. And that's a tremendous amount for our unit. It's so small. Um, you know, in just the last several weeks, uh, the Green Berets, the special forces have lost four guys in the last, I think, four weeks over in Afghanistan still to this day. And they're in the middle of peace talks, right? They're in the middle of ending the war in Afghanistan and guys are still getting killed on the battlefield, fighting the Taliban, fighting ISIS. And it's just like, why, man, why is this still happening? So, you know, there's. I think for me, that's the worst aspect. The greatest aspect also is though, you know, you're part of this, this group. Mm. We call ourselves, you know, the brotherhood. Um, a lot of, you know, military organizations have a similar construct of, of, of how they, these, these underlying terminology they use for these, uh, affiliations. Um, and so you're a part of something that's bigger than you. And, and so you really cultivate these beautiful friendships in ways that you, you wouldn't, you won't have in any other way. And so, you know, the hurricane almost hit in Florida last week. I had, you know, 10 of my closest buddies from the teams and working at the agency texting me regularly. Are you and your family? All right. Do you need me to fly down to help you with anything? You know, just call if you need me. Do you need anything? You know, I mean, really unbelievable offerings from these people that many of them I haven't seen in 10 years, but they're willing to drop everything, fly down, Amazing. help me and my family in a time of need or whatever, if, if need be. Uh, and so that is the best part. And it's the best part of all humanity, right? Is our, our, the innate desire to think about serving someone else than yourself as a result of of the work you've put in for the relate, the development of that relationship, man, when you feel that you feel that success of that and that reality, it's, it's overwhelming. And, and you have that really profound sense that you're not in this by yourself. And so that, that's the best aspect. Mm, So being part of a mission and the brotherhood, this was like, Oh yeah. And so now, you know, what's the new mission in my life is, is to raise these beautiful daughters, to, to be the best possible husband for my fiance and partner in life, to be a better son to my parents who are still thankfully living, you know, her parents, her family, my brother, his partner, 
you know, uh, all my friends, you know, all the people that I come in contact with this incredible job I have of trying to help people and, you know, the people I get to connect with and help on the internet. And so really to just allow the positivity of all that, um, to, to be present in those moments where I'm, I'm in a, um, in a dark place because uh, another one of my friends committed suicide, you know? Hmm. So, so what, what are the things, um, what are the things today that fascinate you the most and what, what are you working on and thinking about? The greatest, the great, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Um, I think the greatest thing I, I'm trying to understand now are, are these, these really, these, these five or six fundamental things that over my life experience, my education, my research, I found are, are the best way for me to understand the human condition. And that's fear, right? Learning mm. how to identify, understand, and embrace your fear in a positive way. Self-confidence, right? Every day our self-confidence is under attack in, in a multitude of ways, right? We're always, yeah, yeah and we're, it's always under attack, right? Whether it's you're in a relationship, you're getting rejected, you're not getting the numbers mm. you want on your podcast, you're whatever it might be, your self-confidence is always being tested. So mm. being able to really get down on why, how that works. The other one is the, the sense of team. What makes a great team function? Right. What are the core components of great teamwork, great team organization, great uh, culture, right? Team culture as well, too. So those things. And then the other one is is is, is purpose, really mm. trying to under, understand the uniqueness of purpose, how people find great purpose and then how their purpose evolves over time. That's one of the one of the great phenomenons to me is that I've seen is that I've. Go, I've, I've gone through all these major transitions of purpose in my life that are relative to my identity, the, the amount of pain I'm willing to experience uh, in order to uh, clearly identify with what I believe is going to be the best, the best uh, um, existence for me, right? And an athlete, a SEAL, uh, a father, a husband, a podcaster, a motivational speaker, a performance coach, you know, a friend, right? Where in all those, what are the driving components of purpose, my meaning? Mm. And so these are, these are, these are not small things to, uh, to so <laughs> I think I these are like the biggest questions you can they ask. They are, probably. they are. And yeah. So I, I, you know, in doing so, I, I, I try and just like you, I try and interview interesting people to gain new perspective. I read a ton of books, uh, about psychology. Um, we're also, we're right now, we're really flirting with a, a project uh, um, about developing a documentary TV series to really begin to explore uh, the various uh, core cultures in America that have that that might not necessarily be what everybody thinks they are right mm. because I think there's some, some real manipulation going on within the media right now and in, in the media and how, uh, how culture is being portrayed. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, and, you know, if you're in, the, in there's no greater age of content development than now. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I've always been fascinated by 
television and TV and, and how that process works and, and to tell a great story. So we're, we're, we're considering how, how we can best go and get into that, that aspect. So, so, so having you having asked those big, big questions and thinking about them, um, what are the things that, um, excite you the most that you, that you found out what, what have been like the biggest epiphanies that you've had in the last couple of weeks or months or, well, the, the, uh, you know, to, 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 to make a direct correlation of, of, of time and environment, you know, when you have a category five hurricane, the highest, the most powerful hurricane in recorded history, uh, you know, spinning 58 miles away from you. And it just, it just literally flattened all of the Bahamas, you know, 30 people dead, 70,000 people homeless. And it's just sitting there waiting to come and take everything away you know it, it could kill everybody that you'd love and care about um that forces you to really be focused on what matters most in life what is my main purpose in life and that is the the protection security and education and development of those four girls the mm. protection security companionship and love of my fiance the protection and companionship of my father my mother And then to, you know, that's the most important. That's where my focus needs to be, the, you know, at, at the highest. The other is to say, to evaluate that process and what, what forces us to, to get to that place, that existential state of reflection, right? Where you're asking the real questions, not, man, how do I, how do I, What do I need to sell in the next month to get that BMW, right? Who gives a shit about that? That's crazy town, right? Your BMW is is nothing and, and it, it has no true value other than, you know, a, a stroke of your ego and recognition that you did a couple things right in order to afford a car that, yeah. you know, although I love BMWs, don't get me wrong, it's, <laughs> it, but it, it's not the pinnacle yeah, of, totally. of, of, of my life, right? So uh, those are the great things. The other great pro challenge for me now on a, on a grander scale is, is how to take these things that I've, these concepts that I've flushed out, created these mission-based educational platform to deliver these, these teaching and then how to, how to reach, uh, an individual at a time to, to expose them to them in a way that then they can turn impl implement them into their lives Not to have radical instantaneous change, right? I'm not a guy trying to sell six-minute abs because that's it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. And I'm definitely not the guy trying to teach you how to make a million dollars in 30 days because I don't know. I've never done it. I don't know what that looks like, right? Uh, but I am the guy that is 100% confident that you are going to face some serious combat in your life coming soon. Don't know when, but you're going to face hardship in a big way. So here are some tools, not the be all end all, but here are some tools, right? Some different uh, weapon systems, if, if you will, to train on, to educate you. So when the insert, you are nose to nose with that insurgency, you can employ these mm -hmm. tactics, which give you either a momentary sense of reprieve to collect yourself, to get back in the fight, or when you've been knocked out of the fight, They, they're the you can re rely on these very tangible concepts uh, if you put the work into them that 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 give you the confidence to stand back up and to go take another beating.
So yeah, so so um, what? Let Let's give our listeners here something practical because I think um, there are so so many people going right now through hardship or like you've said um, in the future will eventually go through tough times. So what are the tools that you that you? Great question. Thank you so much for asking that, Hardy. Uh, you know, one of the first things that everybody needs to do is understand their fear, right? Mm. By far, it's the number one. It's uh, it doesn't matter. Anytime I ask a question, whether it's a group of a thousand sixth graders, a group of CEOs, professional sports teams, you know, whoever, I always, you know, does everybody on here truly understand your fear, right? We mm. all it's the number one most debilitating thing we have. In our lives, this is fear, and we're what's God wired us for fear, right? We are wired for fear. It's 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 part of our survival mechanisms over over you know where, whether you want to call it evolution or you know the God given gift of you know these two little things in your brain called the amygdalas. We are wired for fear. We have a physiological response from when we uh, feel afraid, right? Mm. Sweaty palms, dry mouth. Uh, nervousness, t- stomach in knots, blood rushes to our quads, into our hamstrings, into our biceps, right? We're, we're ready to fight or run away. I mean, it's part of us. It's, and, it, and it's ultimately a huge component of what got us to this, this level. And, and like you said, because now we live in a place where we're not under assault to survive so much every day, right? With a supermarket and plenty of jobs <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Now, we, we're not out there you know, foraging for the last, you know, nut on the ground or trying to, you know, stab a saber tooth tiger, you know, all those skill sets, which kept us sharp are, are, are diminishing. Um, so in the one in particular is to really understand what you're afraid of. It's Mm. easy to know. I'm really afraid of that animal that wants to eat me. That's a, that's an easy one, right? I'm really afraid of, of that person that if I do the wrong thing, they're going to shoot me. That's simple. Mm. It's the long-term slow methodical deaths we experience by lack of drive and, and, and momentum and, and ability to understand our fear. So the first thing I always do in my embrace fear speech and, and mission number one is to search for the truth of where your fear is. And step one, hands down, and, and this is crazy when I ask, you know, how many people in the audience have sat down and written down every single fear you've ever had from when you were a kid, whether you were scared of the dark, scared of ghosts, scared of spiders to adolescence. I was scared to ask girls out or boys out or whatever it is. I was scared uh, to get uh, to go to college or to go to school. I was scared to face my parents. I was scared of that, you know, and then what you're afraid of now, all your, I'm, I'm afraid to be poor. I'm afraid to be rejected. I'm afraid of drugs. I'm afraid of this. And then the future, Mm. And, and write all those things down. And I ask everybody, who in here has done that? And I remember I was in a group of about a thousand people and, and, and three people raised or two people raised their hand. <laughs> Nobody. Basically. And, and one, one person had done it because they were in a psychology course in, in college. And that was a, an exercise. And the other was they'd been in therapy and the therapist had them do it. Mm. But here we have the most debilitating aspect of our lives. The most the, the 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 thing that we're physiologically wired for you can't get rid of. I've I've searched I don't even know I've searched long and hard to try and find actual case studies where people didn't have fear. Right? 
they're either their amygdalas were underdeveloped or they had some type of pathology that they couldn't process fear effectively. And there's very few case studies of it. Every human being deals with it. And on top of being wired for it, you taught fear your whole life. Right? Mm. Look, don't go over there. Don't go near them. Don't mm. do that. Don't talk to them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Hell, my daughters have to recite, you know, these 19 missions every day before I drop them off at school. And and many of the stuff has to do with inducing fear so they're more perceptive of the world around them, right? Mm. So your teeth, hell, turn on the TV. Turn yeah. on the TV. And it's like it's like a, 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 a fire hose of fear being just inundating mm. us. And it's really negative. So I, I have clients write down all of their fears. And, and the first go, go into it, you know, you can't, you can't get crazy with it because it's so overwhelming. Just write, write one word, two words, a sentence down, and then, then walk away from it. And it'll take you a few days to get it done. Don't think you have to do it in one sitting. You know, one, two words, boom, walk away from it for a couple mm. weeks. Come back to it. And then whittle away the stuff that's kind of illogical right spiders i mean there's there's, <laughs> Come there's, on. there's six spider deaths a year and five of them are in australia right <laughs> you know they're you know so i mean you know afraid of ghosts you, you gotta you know <laughs> let, let's let's start really and so what i have people do in the next go around is have them really drill down into the fears that are logical and realistic right yeah then I have them apply themselves. When do they experience it, right? What are the pre-crisis indicators where they start to see it? What do they feel with the physiological responses? How does their attitude change? What words and, and statements do they use to protect themselves in it? And I start flushing it out for them to mm. where they're very, become very aware of what their fears are, how they present themselves, and then what their body is doing, their brain is doing as a result. And then once we have all that, man, now we can start working towards getting to the point where you're not going to get rid of the, the, the whole idea of fearless. That's the biggest load of malarkey I've ever heard about anything <laughs> in my life. But, but there are so many people on the Internet selling that dream. It, yeah, it's like complete and utter bull. I mean, there's <laughs> no, you know, it's ridiculous to, to a, and I listen, I know some of the toughest most hardened human beings on a planet. And like, you know, buddy of mine, you know, got back from a deployment a little while ago. And I'm like, Hey man, it was like his, it was his ninth deployment. Right. And I'm like, Hey man, were you scared? And he goes, you know, David, I was getting shot at. What do you think? You know, yeah. it's like, yeah. Is he better prepared for it emotionally? Is he more able and methodically do his job? Yeah. Through the concept of stress inoculation, we're able to do that. So the fear is still present. It's just how you process the fear is better. You're, they embrace, we're taught to embrace our fear to, to make us more focused, to make us more proficient. Whereas mm. other, when fear comes in, the way we learn it, the way we compartmentalize it, it forces, it stalls us or, or outright paralyzes us if it, if it get, becomes, you know, a phobia, if you will, like agoraphobia or something like that. Yeah. So you, without assessing, addressing, and dealing with your fear, man, you're you're really doing yourself a disservice. So that's the best part to get you going on the process. Because once you have the ability to embrace fear, it makes understanding your self confidence much easier. It makes, excuse me, it makes your ability to integrate with teams a lot better, right? You're more, a better teammate. You're more functional on a team. 
And ultimately, the greatest thing that comes as a result is you're ready to go actually start searching for what your purpose and meaning in life is. Mm. Because those, those are hard ones. Those are scary ones, right? Right. To imagine that you're going to put all this time on this earth, right? Whatever it is, 78.2 years, whatever it is, right? The average life expectancy, you know, you're going to put that time in. And it's a real shame in, in my mind that if if at one point in time, whatever block of time, you didn't actually say, why am I here? You know, and, and what's my meaning? What's my purpose? And then try and live with that purpose to give a greater sense of of why you're here and meaning and what you leave behind. If you don't do that, man, it's just it it's mesmerizing to me that you would want to waste that opportunity in your existence. Mm. So uh, the first step will be uh, acknowledge your fears and understand your fears, right? Hundred percent, hundred percent. You have to start with fear. It's so profound and so substantial in our mm. lives that you can't skip it. You can't. You can't go around and go to purpose first and then come back to no. <laughs> it's got to be fear first, man. I, I wish it didn't have to be, but I, I haven't found a real expert out there in fear. Uh, and, and I'm talking an academic, a religious mm. expert in it. You know, all the people I've read, people, uh, warriors, survivors from stuff, uh, you know, everything I've read and everybody I've ever interviewed about this, you know, they all, it all comes back to uh, being able to truly understand and, 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 and live effectively with fear in your life. And and what what happens then? So uh, because well, it sounds also fascinating. So yeah, please. Well, all right. So just like with anything that you uh, you condition, let's let's talk about a muscle, right? Mm. Uh, I I want to run marathons. What do I have to do, right? Uh, I have to condition my body, my legs, to be able to process enough fuel to be able to run the 26 miles, right? I, I, and I have to practice it. I have to feel it so I can feel what my body's going to do in the various types of heat, how much water I undertake, do I, how many goos I need to eat, how much food, whatever. I, you know, it's this huge ordeal to get to a point where, all right, I can do this, right? There's certain people that, you know, just, all right, I'm just going to do it and they can endure the pain of it, Right. But most of us, we have to process it in, a, in some type of way and, and, and also mentally, mm. right? That first time you, you run 15, 16, 17 miles, you're like, oh, my God. And, yeah. and you still have another 10 miles to go, right, on top of that. So that's, that's a whole process to evaluate that. And on each one of those things involves fear, mm. right? So once you're able to get a, a better understanding of fear – when it presents itself, it's not a shock. It's not, it, it's not this thing where it, it sets you off, you know, kilter so much that you, you're, you're floundering. It's something that you're like, oh, I know what that is. I know what it is. I understand it. I know it's present. But I also know that it, it, it's not going to destroy me, right? It's, it's mm. a, but it's not, and a lot of it is fabricated in my mind. I can endure more pain physically. I certainly can endure infinitely more pain mentally. Uh, uh, emotionally is, is tricky.
for sure. That's the trickiest part when dealing with fear is the emotional fear, right? That's the real deep rooted fear, the fear of not being loved, the fear of being rejected. The fear, I mean, those are the tough ones to assess. But in terms of the mental and the physical, it's much easier. So as you begin to be able to recognize that this thing is always present, it's always there, but you know what it is, you've identified, it loses its force. Mm. It loses its impact. It still stings. It still, it still hurts. It's still there. But, it, but it's not, not so, yeah. But it's not the ultimate determinant factor which is going to pre- pre- prevent you from whatever gain you're searching for, right? Which is ultimately purpose, right? Mm. You know, I, I want to move to uh, Western Africa and, and I want to help treat Ebola victims. That's my purpose in life. Well, holy shit, that's a big fear, right? Because mm. if you mess up, if, you're, if your glove gets poked with a needle while you're giving an ID and, and that Ebola gets on you, you're dead. Yeah. So there's a lot of fear there. But, but if you're able to deal and process with all those fears logically and understand them and and be cautious and have good training, then you can over you can embrace those fears and go do a very powerful, impactful job. Imagine if there weren't those people, right? Imagine if the there weren't those people who wanted to go face Ebola head on in these countries to try and contain this thing that ultimately could could devastate yeah. hundreds of millions of people if left unchecked. Yeah, we can be so glad that the people are like willing to stick their neck out. So exactly so that's what and and those people are aren't any different than really anybody else i mean you you could always say there's differences based on how we were raised where we were raised Mm. influences we had all all those things are unique to ourselves but at our core physiologically Mm. somewhat structurally mentally we're all very similar but what enables those people to go out and do this one of the most selfless jobs that's ever been ever been created in all of his, the history of mankind, right? Or womankind, whatever you want to say, right? How do these people evolve into that space where they can embrace fear at such a significant level and go do the deed that needs to be done that ultimately protects our entire existence? Hmm. And that's their ability to embrace their fear initially. Yeah, and... and- Could you please also, um, because I think that especially through, again, social media, people are comparing themselves all the time. They're seeing like very young people so successful and flexing with their Lambos and they're thinking like, oh, man, what I'm doing, I'm just 22, studying, dead broke, eating ramen soup, so uh, ramen noodles. So uh, <laughs> what would yeah. you tell to them? How how can they gain confidence and um So yeah. the biggest, the biggest way, right, is because we all need, we all need those evaluations, mm. right? They're inspiring in some component, right? Until they're not, until it gets mm. to be where it's so dysfunctional that, you know, you can't. So anything in some, some level can, can be a positive attribute. But what I will say is, is listen, the, the measurement of success, right? The tool, the metric you use. Uh, to to evaluate success, right? You is 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 relative to the amount of work you want to do, mm. <laughs> right? Right. So let's say you want to be a billionaire tech person. Well, 
it's pretty, it's not rocket science how you get there, right? It's not. There's no, there's no secrets, right? There's <laughs> no secret sauce to any of this stuff. And that's why everybody loves Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Because yeah. he gets out in front of these hordes of people, these kids and everybody. And I just, I, I did an event with him recently. Uh, um, it, it was uh, on it, this this great company by a guy. Mm, named yeah, Aubrey so Marcos. I, yeah, I'm friends with Aubrey and did this cool. Design Your Life. And, and Gary spoke the first night and then myself and three others did the next day. But, you know, Gary's there on stage and these kids are coming up and this, you know, they're saying, I've got this great idea, but I don't know what to do. And I'm living with my parents. And, and Gary's like, well, leave your parents, go get a roommate with four roommates, live in a one, one room apartment, uh, work, uh, a job that pays your rent and then spend every other waking minute you can developing this idea and, mm. and you'll figure out a way. And, and everybody's like, what happened? Oh, I got to take this immense, massive risk. And I've got to go experience this horrific pain in order to accomplish this insane task. And, and it's, and it's, you know, you, you don't, all you got to do is go listen to any one of these people's stories who's achieved whatever success you're holding as the, the, the ultimate metric of success and say, how did you get there? Mm. You know, and none of them are going to be like, oh man, it, it was crazy. It happened overnight. I got lucky. <laughs> was, there's not one of them, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was so, buying this book, and then well, yeah, <laughs> one yeah, day I, later, yeah, yeah. one day later, you know, I bought Tony Robbins' "Awaken the Giant" in it, within it, and I was a billion billionaire thirty days later. I mean, it's just horse, you know. It's just it's it's so so. I, I always and I I try I work. My favorite thing to do is work with with people in their in their early twenties, right? I just love that. It's my favorite time because really yeah. people are. You know, the, your all your all your pre-existing notion of what limits are and all that are, are being tested now, right? Because you you know you're out of you're out of the the nest, so to speak. You're trying to find what your direction in life. Everything's confusing. You're getting co a lot of no's. There's a lot of heartache. There's you're you're you know again you're comparing yourself. Well, yeah. what, why are they different? You know, you're doing all this stuff. And I the biggest thing is, hey man, patience. You know, everything, if you want to be successful, um, make the process your passion and your purpose, mm. right? make the, not the end result, you know, not getting the trident. That's the, that's it. It's, it's, it's each second I had to endure excruciating pain and hell week for each second. I, I learned something new about myself that's the grand success mm. right right every time i lose a friend to suicide i force myself to evaluate uh their the positivity of their life what i took from them what i learned from them what how i can in, recharge my own gratitude for my life mm. whatever i'm faced so it's it's stop worrying about ringing the bell i mean still think about it you have to think of it. it has to be you have to structure your your pathway your goal orientation your process with that in mind but recognize each one of these steps is is more valuable than than the end result and so mm. is no fast way for the individual there is no quick way 
There is no other way than insanely hard work, uh, a lot of pain. Just be ready to experience pain. If you have these grand ideas of success and whatever that looks like, if you're not uber fired up about pain, then forget it because it's part of it. It's a big part of it. And pain is what shapes us. Pain is what molds us. I always look about, my, you know, one of my favorite sculptors in the world was, was David by Michelangelo, right? And it's this beautiful, beautiful piece. But man, when that, you, how did it start? It was just a giant hunk of marble, right? And, and, and think about every chisel that man made, right? How many years it took him to chisel that sucker down, right? <laughs> The Sistine Chapel took 14 freaking years. Imagine pain on your back for eight, nine, 10 hours a day on your back for 14 years. Yeah. <laughs> and the SEAL teams, I didn't even feel like I was even beginning to get capable until I was ready to get out. Eight years <laughs> in, I was only scratching the surface of beginning to understand anything. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 14 years into being a speaker and just now am I feeling like I, I think I'm starting to get good, right? <laughs> I, I think I really understand how an audience works and what I need to do and how messaging works just now after 14 years. I mean, I've been doing podcasts now. I started my first podcast was back in 2013, right? And only now and I am I starting to get a modicum of confidence in, in how I interview or how I deliver my messaging, right? You know, I remember my first big interview with uh, Diana Nyad on the TNQ podcast. That was our first big one we did. And this, this woman, right, at 64 years old, 64 years old, completed a task she had taken on for 35 years to swim from Cuba to Florida, right, to swim from a harbor in Cuba to, to Key West, right? Whoa, so amazing. 35 years, five attempts. She made five attempts. On her fourth attempt, it almost killed her, right? <laughs> because she was attacked by so many uh, uh, um, man of war that it, her face swelled up and she almost had to get criked so she could breathe, right? Mm -hmm. And then she spent 115 hours in the water or something crazy. And finished it at 64 years old. So I say to the kids out there, are, are you ready to spend 35 years chasing a dream? And, and are you ready to do a million plus miles of training to accomplish it? That, oh, that's what oh. I ask. That's what I ask. And, and, you know, now with my girls, you know, they're starting to move into athletics. My oldest is 11. She's on travel soccer this is her second year ever playing soccer and she goes out and she's playing with these girls who've been playing since they were three years old and they're all awesome they all have great ball skills and no and and she's behind but she, you know she, physically she's got great thing but it's like hey are you ready to go practice the additional eight hours on the weekend in order to get back on tuesday and be that much closer to them mm. you know, are you ready to put the time into it because that's the only way there's there are zero shortcuts zero mm. zero everybody says well if i win the lottery <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. I, I, if i come up with the genius app or the genius <laughs> idea it just happens overnight and you're like 
no, no. Can you point point one person out for me? And everybody's, you know, goes to these insane stories or whatever. And I'm like, well, let's let's actually look at 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 the pain they experience in the process to get it out and to get it to market and all that. And you know, it's just uh, it's you know that's the biggest say is be patient and, and be ready to apply a truckload of pain and be present in each step of the way. David, so uh, let's end at, uh, on this note. I really love talking to you. So um, at the end, I always ask every guest of mine five quick and short questions. But um, yeah, I, I love your energy. I feel pumped up. Like normally yeah. you should expect like after like a three hour conversation, you feel drained and like, oh, but I feel like. <laughs> hitting it yeah there you <laughs> go great Hardy. so um good it has been so fun talking to you too so uh likewise um like like where can people connect with you work with you uh buy your program or your books uh, find your podcast and so on and so forth so uh yeah thank you thank you for that very much and it's also a, a real pleasure being on with you and again i'm so sorry i missed our first appointment last weekend <laughs> uh, with the hurricane i it's just i hate being like that i'm so sorry and thank you you're so gracious and you're so wonderful to have me on and and i just really appreciate it um uh Pete, you can find me on my website it's it's www.teamfroglogic.com teamfroglogic.com frog logic's one word or you can just uh uh google search navy seal motivational speaker david rutherford frog logic david rutherford there is a german software company called frog logic so uh <laughs> you'll find them but uh, if you type frog logic i have my own youtube channel tons of videos there Uh, my own podcast is on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all of them, Spotify, called Frog Logic Podcast um, in Society and Culture or Philosophy. Uh, I'm there. Uh, and then if you want me as a speaker, I've got a contact form on my website. Uh, listen to the show. You can subscribe on all. I'd love to have you there. And, and then every day on almost every day, I'm not going to say every day, almost as much as I can, I post a motivational kind of daily dose of frog logic on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, I've, I've walked away. I couldn't manage all the rest of LinkedIn. I'm on. Uh, so those are the places people can find me and, and, and the frog logic message. So guys, make sure to follow David. So, uh, <laughs> so the first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? That's a that's a wonderful question. I, I'm really that's the greatest. Number one uh, is the Bible. I mean, is is powerful for me. The New Testament, most especially. I'm still really struggling with the Old Testament. I just don't have enough uh, background in it. It's very complicated. It's difficult. The metaphysical translations are hard. So, but the New Testament was powerful change for me. Uh, just you know, the ability to understand and recognize that. Not so much the magnitude of the prophet of Jesus per se, but the fact of the influence was so profound that these men, regular men, just like you and me, uh, went out and they essentially walked to their deaths just telling people, hey, just love, just mm. love a little more. That's, that's the most powerful concept that we could ever begin to understand that if we just love more in this world, it'll make the world, our, our small worlds, it'll make the world a better place. So just love more. The other one uh, is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm, uh, he, I he love was, this book. Uh, uh, it was, 
I read it probably once a year now. I was up to twice a year in my dark days. Um, but very inspiring read. Yeah. Very inspiring read. It, when, when you think about a, a position where all of your dignity is gone, all of those you loved have been annihilated and, and the, and, and what enabled him to keep going on and to keep, uh, keep giving compassion and love to his fellow concentration camp, uh, 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 prisoners. Um, you know, and the fact that love was able to do that there, there it's, it's just one of the most transformational books ever, uh, to be able to love in the faith, in the complete and utter blanket of hatred. Uh, that really is a, a, a powerful message. And then the last one is, is a book called on the road by Jack Kerouac. Mm, uh, a yeah, beat, very writer, popular yeah, book. Beat, beat writer from the 1950s and and the reason for that one it was really the first book for me that created a narrative of of that life is creativity right the unknown adventure that's in front of you the ability to be spontaneous to go do something you never do before to integrate with people that are outlandish or radically different from you uh, and to hear the, 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 the beats of humanity, to hear the jazz of life, uh, to understand the power of words and poetry, uh, that for me was, was transformational because mm. it made me realize that what I was searching for did not exist in Boca Raton. It did not exist on the campus at Penn State. It existed in the world around me. Uh, and, and to what degree was unknown. And the only way for me to truly understand or to understand the magnitude of that potential influence was to get out there and go experience life in that capacity. Mm. And so it really was, was this, this big push for me that if I wanted to, uh, be able to embrace my fear a lot more, really develop self-confidence to, uh, to be part of better teams and to find purpose and meaning in life, I had to go explore the world with a very creative mindset and, mm. and not to be so constrained, right? We, we, we spend so much of our time trying to constrain our perceptions uh, to, to be ultimately rooted in, 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 in our do the dogmatism of our core belief structures. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be very strong or focused or courageous with your beliefs, but to also recognize other people have different beliefs. And different mm. values, different ideas, and not to not to try and uh, not to allow yourself to judge them in a profoundly negative way just because they're different. And so that book really taught me that. So those are the the three main books for sure. Got it. So uh, the second question is, um, what are the three movies that you have enjoyed the most? Oh, that's a that's another phenomenal question. Uh, <laughs> I'll start with uh, Apocalypse Now by Francis Ford Coppola. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a big Hearts of Darkness fan as a kid, you know, and, and reading that. And then the, the movie itself was just phenomenal. Isn't it about the Vietnam War? Yeah. I, I've watched yeah. it three weeks ago. They not just came out with the, yeah, yeah, they just came out with the 50th anniversary, new cuts in it. Uh, that movie really shifted my perception of, of the art. Uh, and telling stories and the magnitude of warfare. I mean, it was huge impact on me when I was about 13 years old. Uh, so that movie is substantial. Uh, the second one is The Razor's Edge uh, with Bill Murray. 
and Bill Murray is this affluent kid in the 1920s, uh, or actually early 1900s, uh, in you know the golden age of whatever, and and World War One breaks out. He goes over to World War One, re- realizes his life has no meaning, and then goes on this epic voyage around the world to find the meaning of life. Mm. Uh, and really is this powerful. And here's Bill Murray, right? This wonderful comedic actor who is now you know being able to you know you know share this incredible heartfelt journey uh towards discovery and and it's you know it's just a beautiful 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 book um uh so that is one of them and then i i would probably say my my other favorite and i don't know if you could call this a film uh, but uh, uh, Ken Burns' documentary on the Civil War uh, is really uh, uh, something that's been transformational for me because, you know, we all, I mean, I think the world holds America in this particular light. We definitely hold ourselves in this particular light, but yet we forget uh, about 100 and some odd year, 150 years ago, uh, we tried to destroy ourselves, right, to where one in 16 Americans killed was killed, Families were fighting each other. We we destroyed. I mean, you look at the Battle of Gettysburg and 58,000 human beings were killed in three days. Right. You look at Pickett's charge and and 7000, I think it was 7000 guys died in 14 minutes. And so you look at the the for me, it's this constant reminder. And I, when I go back to watch it, that how easily and quickly a group of people can become divided and, and believe that we can annihilate each other uh, and solve some grand solution, which in this case we did, right? Mm. It was the first time where slavery ended in our country, which was a pivotal moment in human history where there, you know, an internal intense war was fought over the enslavement of other human beings to end that. So that's a one of the most powerful moments in human history. Um, and, and so I watch that and, and really take heed to the potentiality and destructiveness that human beings possess, but also the willingness to fight for what's right. And, and so it's a very powerful thing for me. So, uh, I, I, you know, those are the three ones that really are, are heavy for me. So uh, the third question is, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Most useful product or service? Wow, that that's bought? a great question. Um, I, you know, I would say the soccer ball is, is by far the most useful product that I've bought recently, right? And, and that's why it, it, it's, it's, it's the sport of the world, right? Yeah. So my, you know, all the girls, my girls, each one of them, I bought a soccer ball recently. Uh, I, you know, during the World Cup that was over in Germany, uh, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, our team is very good and they have inspired millions of little girls around the world. So, you know, here's the simple, the most simple shape ever created for human sport. And to give that to my daughters and to have them be invested And, and then that approaches this other subject of the World Cup and competition and what that means. Really, just such powerful lessons to be learned in this little sphere. You know, mm. it's powerful. Yeah, so that, that's, that's for sure. Ball. Yeah, what was so, the other part of that question? 
Uh, no, that that's it. That was oh, it. Okay, great. Okay. So uh, the fourth question is out of the five. What are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about yeah. their business, family life, uh, travel, time, relationships. So yeah, deep what stuff. Love, but, uh, what what love means? Uh, that's the biggest one. Mm. You know, went through a real tough divorce. Fiance was the first time I was able to. Uh, redefine love in a healthy way. And, and love is something that we, we take for granted so often. And, and it's something much like fear, we need to spend much more time in understanding and defining, right? And our, the love that we feel for other people on different levels can be radically, can be different, can be measured differently. And so it's important for, I think, a lot of, a lot of people to, um, to be able to evaluate. So that mm. for me has been the thing, you know, after having my ideal definition of love shattered, shattered into a thousand pieces of glass and having, you know, having to have this divorce tribe help me put them back together and really Jana helping me put them to, together in this new mosaic, right? This new stained glass window of what love really is about has been transformational for me. And so mm. that that's the, the most significant thing I've been able to go through in the last three years was just redefining love in, in a new way uh, to where I'm um, um, more available to access it and deliver it in, in healthy ways. Got it. So uh, the last question for today is, David, um, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Oh, my God. Um, that's a great great fantastic question uh i it's very tough right because you're like i look back and recognize that all the pain that i've gone through got me here so if i go back and i tell myself hey don't do this do that do something else i might not be here mm -hmm. right and 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 so that's a that's a slippery slope if I could do it in a way that wasn't as ominous, like me presenting to myself in this apparition or this vision or whatever, you know, is if I could embody some random stranger on the street where I knew it wouldn't have as, 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 as a consequential impact as, as me presenting myself to me in this grand vision, right? I would say I would reinforce what my father always said to me, uh, and say, uh, you know, Hey, be a renaissance man, mm. be a person that is excited about life in, in its totality. And most especially be excited about what other human beings have inside them. Be excited about what other human beings create, be excited about creating your own, you know, your own, the own art of your own life. Uh, and, and, and go out there and experience life and, and, and do so in a manner which you're patient and you're, you're present and you really can experience the breadth of what, you know, this divine experiment that we have called life, man. That's what I would say. <laughs> David, 
Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, this is the first time I hit the three-hour mark, so yeah, yeah. we did it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm there for you, and it was and it was pain-free, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> this was like so fun talking to you. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Hardy. God bless you. Thank you. <laughs> See ya. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, make sure to share the podcast and tell your friends about it. Thank you so much for supporting the show. I'll see you in the next episode. Over and out.